It's a watch along from August 4th, 1997. It's nitro number 100. It's the first time they expand nitro to three hours and they end the show with quite the bang. Uh, this is going to come to us just one day after SummerSlam 1997, which of course finished with a hot angle with Bret Hart and the undertaker and Shawn Michaels and man, WCW right in the middle of this Monday night war is going to answer, uh, with something very special of their own. Um, and I know Eric last week you had a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a dental emergency. Is that the right phrase we want to use? This is so embarrassing, but I don't care. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got my teeth knocked out when I was really young, um, with a baseball bat. It's a whole nother story. And, you know, dental technology has advanced quite a bit. So about, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years ago, I got those dental implants right. where they, you know, basically put the, you know, fake roots of, of a tooth in your, up into your jaw and then they screw a fake tooth into it and they're really super permanent. And I was so excited to finally get that done because up until that point, you know, you've, you've heard about it, you've read about it. People have made jokes about it when I used to take my teeth out and just to freak people out before I had the permanent, you know, dental implants put in. But once I got those dental implants put in, I thought, finally, I can eat corn on the cob. I can eat, you know, ribs. There's a lot of things you can't do when you have dentures or partial dentures and things like that. Anyway, fast forward, I finally get these dental implants about eight or ten years ago, and I, I get to Stanford. Now I've got this big job, right? I'm meeting with, you know, Vince McMahon on a regular basis. I've got all these, you know, big meetings going on. A lot of pressure on me. And I'm I'm feeling it, not gonna lie. It's you know, I'm as as Bruce Pritchard told me when he said, I'm I'm gonna tell you, buddy, when you come here, you're gonna feel like you're drinking you know, water out of a fire hose. And it's absolutely the truth. Now, about a week and a half after I get here, I've got one of those fake teeth that's, you know, a dental implant is loosening up uh -oh. to the point to the point where I'm fearful that if I use like, you know, words that start with F uh, and, and not the F word, but, you know, if I were to say fire truck I'm just waiting for my loose dental implant to come flying out of my mouth at the worst possible moment. So, yeah, I, I had to get that done last Saturday because, you know, the schedule here in, at WWE in Sanford is pretty intense. There's not a lot of free time, to put it mildly. But fortunately, there's a dentist right down the street that, you know, works on Saturdays and he screwed my tooth back into my jaw and I'm all good. It's amazing that both you and Bruce, you know, take gigs with WWE and in short order, both of your, uh, both of you have dental emergencies. It's like, I, th I think that's a, I think that's the universe's way of just saying, keep your fucking mouth shut. I think it's like, <laughs> I, I was wondering, do you think it's the genetic jackhammer? I mean, has Vince wandered into the blue chew and it's just chipping the teeth of the entire staff? Not nearly as funny as I hoped. <laughs> So Eric, are you, uh, you getting acclimated to Stanford? Uh, you know, I, I know it's, it's a lot of, uh, moving parts and it's a big change of life, not just professionally, but personally as well. I have seven suits, Conrad seven, you know, when, when Bruce Pritchard called me, uh, I don't know. What was it about a month and a half ago or two months ago, I was sitting on my deck, drinking a cup of coffee and my boxer shorts and a t-shirt 
It's about eight o'clock in the morning. I'm in Cody, Wyoming. I'm looking out over the reservoir, the Buffalo Bill Cody Reservoir, which if you look beyond that, you're looking right up into the valley, leading you into Yellowstone National Park. It's just mountains, snow-capped mountains, beautiful. I had antelope crossing my property in the distance about 300 yards away. Beautiful, calm morning. My phone rings. It's Bruce Pritchard. I answer it because it was Bruce Pritchard. Bruce said, hey, buddy, you ready to go back to work? My heart skipped a beat. I thought, hmm, what could this mean? This is a hell of an opportunity. This is a change of life. This is, this is a moment. This is one of those moments in your life when you realize that all the things you thought were going to happen all of a sudden changed with one phone call. And then here I am in Stanford, Connecticut. I woke up my first morning here. Lori and I arrived in Stanford, Connecticut. We had our dog, Nikki, with us. We stayed at the Marriott. We pulled in late at night. We arrived in Stanford, Connecticut. I found out my apartment was only blocks away. I grabbed my dog. I walked over to the apartment. It was like 5.30 in the morning. I went over to the apartment area right next to us, and there's a park bench. And I sat on the park bench, and I watched buses going by and cabs going by and people honking their horns. And I thought, what have I done? What have I done? I've gone from the tranquil environment of Cody, Wyoming, and majestic mountains and snow-capped scenery and reservoirs and antelope, and here I am staring at fucking buses going by at 60 miles an hour, and people that just love their horns. And then I had to go shopping for suits. I, did, I hadn't <laughs> bought a suit. I swear to God. I hadn't bought, you know, because Bruce said, you got to wear a suit. I thought, Bruce, I haven't, I haven't worn a suit since 2003 or at least bought a suit. So I had to go to Ben's Warehouse and I bought like five or six suits. And I thought, well, these are like off the rack suits. This is never going to work because WWE, you know, I'm an executive. I got to, you know, I got to rise to the occasion in every possible way. So then I went out and started ordering custom suits, which my God, they're expensive. Now I've got a whole closet full of suits. Conrad, I've got suits. That's how much I've adjusted to life in Stanford. I have suits. So you said you're feeling sort of East coast, you know, when, uh, I mean, obviously there's a big change of scenery there, but do you, I mean, originally from Minnesota, did anybody in the, in the Bischoff clan ever wind up this far East or is this the furthest y'all been? Well, my great, uh, great grandfather immigrated from Germany and obviously came to New York. Uh, he was, believe it or not, a beer master or brewer in wow. Germany and came, came to the United States. Kind of, kind of explains a lot of shit for me. <laughs> I, I, I blame it on my genetics, <laughs> but, um, no, most of the Bischoff family, you know, once my great, great grandfather immigrated here, you know, ended up in Detroit, uh, because the auto business and, you know, everything was going on in Detroit at that point. Um, uh, but no, I'm, I'm, as far as my immediate family, this is, you know, I'm the farthest East other than my great, great grandfather we've ever been. 
Now we're going to go back and relive one of the great moments in professional wrestling history. Hopefully you found it on the WWE network. It took uh, Eric and I a couple of huddles to make it happen today, but we are excited <laughs> to bring you this episode. One of the more special nitros in history It's August 4th, 1997. It's two hours and 24 minutes or so. What we're going to do is fire it up. We're going to put it on mute. We're going to turn on closed captioning. And then we're going to press play with a quick countdown. Eric, do you want to count us down? And we'll press play when you say play. In five, four, three, two, one, go. Play. And there we go. Palace of Auburn Hills. You know, I know you've been criticized a lot for bringing Buffer in, but dude, this has a big fight feel. It makes it feel like an occasion. Oh, I don't miss signs right now. Right now, I wish signs weren't a thing back then. Buffer was so much class. I mean, look at him. He's in that white tuxedo and a white shirt, the bow tie. And honestly, the only thing I didn't like about Michael Buffer is he had better hair than I did. Oh, my God. Look, look at that. Look at that hair. That is magnificent hair. That is, that is, that is just elegant hair. Look at the crowd. Nice, beautiful crowd shot. We take that big jib shot. We're Detroit, Michigan. We've got pyro. We've got flames coming out of the corner, turnbuckles. This is just awesome. Beautiful picture. Sets the stage for what is, I am sure, just a magnificent event. Yeah, I mean, the most historic, I guess, uh, Nitro at the time. I mean, this is going to be the first time you're, you're testing three hours. And, uh, it's a, it's a big moment in, in wrestling history as well with one of the biggest pops that I remember during this era. I mean, everybody is going to remember the main event with Lex Luger and Hulk Hogan. And we're just, you know, not too terribly far away from the road wild event. The Sturgis event, nitro girls here doing their thing. Oh, come on. Now let's, let's just pass by that. No, no. The nitro girls are looking hot. They are looking hot. They are leaving the Dallas cheerleaders, Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders in the dust. They you think, are looking magnificent. You think we might see some uh, SmackDown sisters on Fox or something like that? SmackDown sisters, I like that. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. I have to give credit where credit is due. That thought had not crossed my mind, but SmackDown sisters rocks on Fox. I like that. Come on. <laughs> Look at this, uh, capacity crowd here, man. I mean, the idea that you're drawing this big of a crowd for a historically Southern promotion. And you know, you guys were struggling to get 3000 folks to a show once upon a time, but here you are in the summer of 97 sold out, hanging from the rafters. How happy is that guy pointing to the belt right there? That guy pointing to the, uh, Hulk Hogan's belt is gonna just the second best head of hair in Detroit at that moment. Do you see that hair? That was awesome hair. And I got my shirt tucked in. I got my leather jacket on. I'm doing my strut to the ring. Hollywood Hulk Hogan is doing his thing. The crowd is going wild. They love this. The sign says Hogan is wrestling. And definitely, without question, at this moment in time, here we are in August of 1997. Make no mistake about it. Hulk Hogan is professional wrestling. 
by the way, this total crowd here, 17,616 fans at the palace. This is going to be the second largest in company history at this point. Uh, you'd have to go back a whole month to June 9th when you guys had 18,003 fans at the fleet center in Boston. The live gate here is really strong. $240,519. Of course, Boston had about three grand more. It's basically a sellout in that all the tickets that were originally planned to be sold were gone a few days ahead of time. But on the day of the show, they opened up some obstructed view seating, some of which go unsold. So it's not necessarily a turn away crowd, but if you tried to buy tickets leading up to this, you were told, Hey, this thing is, is sold out. And there were some comps here, 4,258 comp tickets. So the paid attendance is 13,356. So when you really take into consideration that that was the paid number, it probably is like a, a near record gate for you based on that. I know a lot of times when people hear, man, 4,258 comp tickets, how, how would that be? It sort of explain, you know, the business of pr- promoting a live event with a big venue like this and why you would give away, you know, buckets of tickets like this. Well, for a lot of reasons, um, first and foremost, when you're marketing an event like this, you know, you, you do partnerships with radio stations, television stations, you know, different local promotions where people have a chance to win or register to win or whatever it may be. Uh, tickets because it, it, it allows you to get a lot of free local promotion. Uh, the radio stations that you're working with have a chance to give away something to their listeners, which is good for the radio stations, which means they push your product more and, and on a consistent basis. So uh, that's the reason for comp tickets. It's nothing but a marketing uh, opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I think that gets uh, slept on or misinterpreted a lot online, but giving tickets to a radio station or TV station to bring more awareness to your event. And it doesn't actually cost you anything. You're not writing a check for it. You're giving away something that, you know, without you has no value and you're on the hook for it anyway. Why not, you know, take a little bit of free promotion in exchange. I I think when I think about this era of nitro and I think about Eric Bischoff on screen, this is what I think of the most you hold it, holding the mic for Hulk Hogan, who sort of came up with the idea that he wasn't going to be the one holding the mic, which is more commonplace now, but instead you would do it. Is it just what he was most familiar with from the mean gene days or how did that come to be? I mean, I think it was part of the, <clears throat> the, you know, it was part of the format, the formula. It's what everybody was used to at the time. Hulk always had, you know, and Mean Gene was the guy that always was the, the mic man for Hulk Hogan. Hulk never really grabbed the microphone in his career. He always had a stick man, if you will, somebody that would set him up, uh, help accentuate, you know, what needed to be accentuated or move the promo along if it was necessary. I, I was two things. I was a mic stand, as was Gene, Mean Gene Oakland, by the way. I was a mic stand, and I held that mic for him, but I was also there in case things got off track to get them back on track as best as I could. So um, it was a dual-purpose kind of situation. This is the first time that Nitro was three hours, and I'm in the central time zone. So that meant at my house, Nitro was on from seven to 10, but Eastern time Nitro was on from eight to 11. Talk to me about, you know, how this 
sort of transition to a three hour show came to be, is it your idea to Turner ask for it? What were the benefits or the pros or the cons or the challenges with a three hour show? Before we get into that, did you just see that sign in the crowd that said Bischoff is God? I I just want to point that out. I did see that. You saw that? I did. Yeah. All right. You see all those NWO shirts in the crowd? I think they missed that. Oh, though, with the whole Bischoff is God. I mean, you're, you're pretty good, right? Yeah, no, I'm good, but did you see all those NWO shirts? Did you see all those NWO shirts in the crowd? Do you see that Tony Schiavone cannot button his fucking collar down? What's wrong with him? Look at this. That is just fucking ridiculous. Where's Annette Yothers? Annette, get on your shit. What's wrong? <laughs> Not touching that one, brother. <laughs> oh, you like that, didn't you, Conrad? I lit you up. <laughs> So, uh, chat me up this three hour change. Is this something that, Hey, first two hours are doing great. Why not? I mean, it's doing better than whatever the lead in was. I'm sure. Or was it, Hey, let's just get a jump on WWE. Is there a strategy to, if we start earlier and captivate them, sort of set the hook, it gives us an hour to set the hook and hope they don't leave us. Uh, no, it, it wasn't the latter. It was really an economy of scale kind of a decision. You know, it, it costs a certain amount of money to produce a two-hour show. And our ratings were great. Things were rocking and rolling. We definitely had the attention of the audience. And it, it, it became a financial decision from TNT, not from me. Uh, I didn't want to do a three-hour show, for God's sake. Uh, it's hard enough doing a two-hour show. Uh, but, you know, the executives at, at Turner Broadcasting, the financial side of the business, and, and Brad Siegel went, wait a minute, we're spending X amount of money for this two hour show and for 10% more, we could have a three hour show and get an even bigger ROI or return on investment for, for the production. So it was really uh, an economic decision, a financial decision that was imposed upon us by TNT. I certainly was not a big fan of it. Well, you made it work. We should mention here that you're going to be heads up with the debuting Walker, Texas Ranger series on USA, it does a 2.3. You guys get a four in this first hour here, uh, which we is, bi- we, bi- we bitch slap Chuck Norris. Everybody talks about what a badass Chuck Norris is. We bitch slap that punk. Makes me really happy. Uh, of course we know that, uh, this is going to be a big show because on the other channel, you're one day after SummerSlam. I mean, is there is there real strategy as to when you start going to three hours? I think you guys called this the 100th Nitro. I think some fans are going to argue, oh, technically it wasn't. But is this uh, more of, hey, you see when their pay-per-view is, you know they're going to have a hot TV coming off of it, or people are going to be tuned in, so let's counter-program that. Or What's the strategy to making this sort of the three-hour debut? I would really love to kind of like, like, like most people, you know, in, in this industry do, they always try to make them sound make themselves sound really smart. Like they're, they were really on top of their game and it was a big strategy and they thought it through and they were like the, the, the Sun Tzu, like the, 
of, of the entertainment business. And the truth is, I had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with WWE. It was or WWF at the time. It was all about. Okay, what makes the most economic sense for the network? How can we get the biggest bang for our financial buck? How do we make this work? And oh, by the way, they're coming off of SummerSlam. It was the the fact that WWF was coming off SummerSlam was really uh, a coincidence. It was not part of a, a strategy or, or, or tactics, if you will. Well, let's talk about the creative though, because the creative to have Hulk Hogan finally lose, and this is at a time we should remind everybody this is. Early August, first Monday show of August, 1997. So sting has been in pursuit of Hulk Hogan for a long time now. And Starcade 97 is still more than four months away. So ahead of that, ahead of sting being the one to sort of dethrone Hulk Hogan, Lex Luger is going to do it on this very show. And that does feel like. You guys making a decision here that, Hey, we, we want to pop a number. We want to make a statement. We want to plant a flag in the ground. We want to drum up new interest in the pay-per-view, whatever. There is a reason that you would do a title switch like this on TV. Chat me up about how that came about. I I really think it was more about, look, we're faced with three hours. We got to produce the best show we can. We got to deliver, you know, the formula that we use for nitro was to start off hot, the hottest way we possibly could create interest, hook them, you know, make sure during the middle of the show, we've got something that's really extraordinary during the crossovers and let's leave them really happy at the end. We, we book ended our stories. And by the way, that wasn't like, you know, groundbreaking formula, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, it's basically a, a three-act structure: um, beginning, middle, and end. Make sure you begin hot, the middle's hot, the end is hot. Leave them with something to talk about. That it's it's so simple that it always works. But we knew going into a three-hour format that we had to deliver something really big. And again, I want to point out it had nothing to do with WWE. People think, or WWF at the time, whatever it was, people always assume or analyze what took place back then and try to draw draw some kind of correlation and, and imagine what a strategy was. And like we were analyzing every single week. What are they doing? What are we doing? How could we out program them? It really wasn't that it really was all about, I'll speak for myself and I was kind of driving the ship at the time. It was a more of a focus effort. How can we deliver the best show every single week? And when we were giving the challenge and that's exactly what it was of delivering a three hour show, it was more about how can we do, how can we deliver the best three hour show we can? And Oh, by the way, this is what WWF is doing. It, we, there was no real competitive, you know, strategy involved it was just about delivering the best show we could by the way we just saw one of uh, kurt's best matches in this era and uh, Meltzer would give a lot of credit to mortis and say it really shows you what type of performer mortis is to get such a good match out of kurt because since he had come back to wcw for whatever reason Meltzer felt like kurt had lost a step but i guess that's probably natural having been on the sidelines and inactive maybe you get a little rusty after a bit but Still quite a good match to open. Uh, it does, uh, deviate a little bit from what I grew up on with nitro, which was a luchador match, but it's still very competitive, fun, really good match here. 
And Ooh, uh, look at that. Oh, we're watching the fans just absolutely crush a Monday Night Raw. So I know that that breaks my heart, especially now. Who was, uh, who's sort of calling the shots in the truck where the camera guys are roaming around trying to shoot interesting stuff for spots like this. And somebody says, oh yeah, get a shot of that. Who would have that somebody have been? Craig Leathers. It's his fault. He did it. Not me. He did it. I had nothing. It was not me. I had nothing to do with it. So here's the, uh, the package put together on sting sort of explaining the transformation the sting has been through where he was, you know, the old surfer sting with the neon colors and now coming down from the rafters and using a bat, all black and white, the crow sting. It is sort of weird that, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll always think of sting as more of the crow surfer sting because that's the one I sort of grew up on, but God, he had this look all the way through until now. I mean, when he makes appearances now, he's doing it as the crow sting. It really shows you sort of the impact of WCW's run here in the late nineties, that this is the one he's sticking with. Connor, I'm going to take a quick break here. I got to use the restroom and I'm going to keep everybody entertained and we're leaving that in baby. So <laughs> go help yourself. JJ Dillon coming out to make an offer to sting to come back and uh, wrestle. And it's been a while. I think most people remember in late 96 is when, uh, they did the old fake sting, the NWO sting with Jeff farmer. Oh my gosh. Look there. It's laser Tron Hector Guerrero. And of course, Chavo, uh, this is going to be an interesting match that you wouldn't think would have happened in this era. Uh, it's been a while since I watched this. I watched it with Tony a few years ago though, but so we're going to team up with Dean Malenko, of course of horseman fame and Jeff Jarrett. How about that? And, uh, Dave Penzer there as our referee. Oh, where would we be without Deborah? Jeff Jarrett and, and Eric Bischoff's favorite ring attire here. I think he says he looks like a, uh, a Chippendales dancer. I don't know how Eric knows what a Chippendale dancer wears, but you know, I don't judge. So as we mentioned, this is one night after SummerSlam 1997. And, uh, there's going to be a lot of news coming out of that show. Of course, most famously, Steve Austin getting dropped on his head and being in a very, very bad way. But it wouldn't help Raw any, you know, fans, while they may have been curious what was going on, uh, Raw is back to, um, a 2.66 and a 4.36 share. Raw and Nitro combined between nine and 11. The total rating is like a 7.1 and over 5 million homes. And Meltzer would say that share figure, which is 11.86. Is phenomenal because it shows how mainstream pro wrestling really is at that point. So to sort of break that down, when someone says the share, what they mean is out of the, let's imagine people watching television is 100% of the pie, right? 11.86% of that pie is watching raw or nitro. So 11.86% of everyone watching TV at that very moment is watching professional wrestling which is pretty crazy. And, um, 
this is the, uh, the match later on in the show, which is going to be quite the record. 3.6 million homes are going to watch it. The only time that WCW did better was back in August of 94 for clash of the champions with Hogan flair. And that was 4.1 million homes. So a ton of homes tuned in here for Hogan Luger. I'll see if Eric's done playing with it now. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you dirt bag. Well, I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> you, that's just fucking horrible. I can't believe you did that to me. Now here, here's what I did. I hit pause and I think I lost my video. So I may, I may have to rely on you to describe the video and I'll comment on it. Well, it, everybody's watching along at home. We're, we're at 20 minutes and two seconds. All right. Keep it going. And I've uh, got a shoving match here with your favorite Jeff Jarrett and Hector Guerrero, Hector Guerrero. One of the, uh, it, it's, it's always fascinating to me to ha- sort of have a discussion. How would these guys fit in a different era? If Hector Guerrero was 10 years younger, he could have been a big player during the Monday night wars. Couldn't he? He could, you know, Hector was a great character. I mean, there was so much passion in the Guerrero family. If you look at any one of the Guerreros, you know, all of them were technically very gifted, uh, some more than others. But one of the things they all had in common was just so much passion. When they were in the ring, they believed in their characters. They believed in their story. And it translated to the audience. And they were all of them were great. As a reminder, if you're watching at home, we're right now at 21 minutes. See uh, Jeff Jarrett making the tag here to Dean Malenko. You know, we don't talk a lot about Scott Dickinson. Do you got any fun or interesting moments or stories you can share with us about Scott Dickinson? Not a fucking one. Not a one. I mean, nice guy, decent referee, um, kind of stayed to himself. I don't remember ever seeing him socially after the shows. He was not one of the guys that would come to the hotel bar and kind of hang out and participate. Unlike Nick Patrick, who was, you know, always at the center of of whatever was going on. And, you know, Randy Anderson was another one that was kind of off to himself and never got, you know, too, too, too out in front of anything. But Scott Dickinson, no, I don't remember much of him at all. Not to say it was a great referee, just kind of not, not a social butterfly. While you were gone, we talked about the share and that this was an incredible share when you combined, you know, raw and nitro this night. 11.86 was the share, which is just. Holy shit, that was huge. Damn, son. We were rocking the world in 97, weren't we? Yeah. 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 It's cool. It's unbelievable that, that wrestling got as hot as it did here. And, um, you know, you guys were able to ride this wave for so long. I mean, record revenues in 97, uh, and then you're going to break that again in 98. It's just unbelievable. The, the growth year over year that you guys have seen and the beat goes on. I mean, here we are just. A handful of days from, from road wild, uh, 1997, which is 
you know, the Sturgis event that we've had fun poking at here on the show, but that's August 9th. So it's five days away from this show here, but you've got a, a clash of the champions on August 21st. And I think that's the last one, uh, that was in Nashville and it's, uh, it's one of those deals where, you know, WCW has got major shows on top of major shows here in 97. Yeah. And the dynamic with clash of the champions, because there was so much emphasis put on, uh, nitro and all the resources and, you know, I mean, Nitro was driving the ship, but Clash of the Champions was historically kind of like the big network special on TBS. But there was a point where, you know, corporately, it was, you had to make a decision. You know, we're going to put all of our eggs in the Nitro basket, or we're going to try to keep this TBS thing alive. And we put so much emphasis creatively and, you know, financially and every other way into Nitro that. I hate to say it this way. I can't think of a better way to say it or a different way to say it, but Clash of the Champions became kind of a secondary effort. Not that we went into it wanting it to feel that way, but because there was just so much energy and focus on Nitro that inherently, I guess, or naturally, uh, Clash of the Champions became kind of a an afterthought, which was unfortunate because Clash of the Champions really was, from a legacy perspective, I guess, one of the things that made um, WCW stand out on the TBS networks. So it, you know, it was it was a conflict. We were we tried for a long time. How do we make Clash of the Champions feel as big as Nitro? But Nitro became a victim of its own success. So I should say Clash of the Champions became a victim of Nitro's success. Would be a better way to say it. Nitro became such a a living, breathing animal that there was really nothing we could really do to keep Clash of the Champions feeling special, especially when we were doing as many pay-per-views as we were doing. Because now you've not only got Nitro, this monster, this living, breathing animal that ate up a ton of talent and a ton of creative and we're always looking for a way to top ourselves each and every week – you know, that took a lot of creative horsepower and intellectual property horsepower. And, and oh, by the way, all of that effort is really driving a pay-per-view. And you have to deliver on that pay-per-view, you know, once a month or whatever it was in 1997. I think we're, by that time we were probably at 12 uh, or close to it. And it just by default. Clash of the Champions became kind of an after, not an afterthought. That's a wrong way to say it, Eric, but it became, it was a third priority, not a first priority as it had previously been. What we've got going on right now is Stevie Richards, uh, trying to convince Raven to sign this WCW deal that he's got him. Of course, Raven is sitting, uh, front row ringside and Stevie is on the inside of the guardrail. Main Gene here trying to figure out what in the world is going on with Stevie Richards and Raven. I got to tell you, it was not a surprise to me when you signed Raven because he had, you know, he'd been around and he had worked for you guys and the WWF and he had been a very big player for ECW, but it felt like Stevie Richards was primed for the big push in ECW being a part of their main event of their first pay-per-view. And then you guys snatched him up. Who would have been the person who would have said, Hey, what about Stevie? 
I would say either Kevin, most likely Kevin Sullivan, possibly Terry Taylor. Because Terry Taylor, one of you know Terry's roles, other than, nah, I'm not going to say that. Um, one of, oh, well, you gotta, you can't tease it. No, no, no. There's no. You gotta come on. You're amongst friends. Controversy <laughs> creates cash. <laughs> You're inside the pent pissing out, pissing out now. Come on. Let's just say that Terry had a voracious appetite. Gotcha. All right. We'll let, we'll let it go at that. I'm with you. All right. Read between those lines, motherfucker. Um, but you know, Terry was probably the primary person that would, you know, keep his finger on the pulse of what was going on outside of WCW. And oftentimes was the guy that was looking at tapes and, and evaluating people on a pretty regular basis. So I would say it was either Kevin and Kevin, as we've discussed before, you know, was watching ECW and, and aware of what was going on there more than anybody else. Uh, but but it could have been Terry as well. So I, I would put my money first on Kevin, but I'd back that bet up with Terry Taylor. The Giant coming out next. There's lots of different versions of Paul White. Did you have, uh, when you sort of close your eyes and think about the Giant and WCW, what do you, what do you gravitate to? Yeah, well, painfully. Um, the way we debuted him, you know, as Andre's son, that was painful. It's painful now to think about. I didn't realize how painful it was when we did it. It didn't feel right, but you know, that was at a period of time when I wasn't really confident enough in myself to throw down and kind of draw a line into the sand when it came to creative. I, I trusted the people that had more experience in that area than I did. I hate to say it. I deferred a lot. Um, but that was one of the things I went, uh, not really working for me, but if you guys think it's a great idea, okay, I'm going to go with it. Um, and now looking back at it, I'm really kind of embarrassed by it. It was really a creatively a, a poor choice for a lot of reasons, but it was what it was it, it to everybody else. You know, it, it probably felt like it made sense and I understand it. You know, it's easy now, 20 years later, whatever it is to go, wow, that was a horrible decision. And it may have been, uh, but at the time I understand why the decision was made. It just ultimately in retrospect turned out to be a bad one. You guys have, uh, sort of tinkered with a few different ways of, of figuring out how to quote, get over the giant. And then eventually you came up with these multi-man matches. See, you see him really just laying waste to three dudes at once. I kind of like this. This feels like a, a Kevin Sullivan booking. Uh, Kevin and probably Hulk, you know, Kevin and Hulk talked often. Uh, the giant was really, uh, Paul white was really a Hulk Hogan project. Hulk felt very strongly about him and believed he could be the next really big thing. And I understand why. And by the way, so did, I believe, Vince McMahon, who offered him a tremendous amount of money and a long-term contract to leave WCW to come to the WWF at the time, now WWE. So it wasn't like, you know, Hulk was the only one that saw, you know, potential dollar signs in, in Paul White or the Giant. Um, I, You know, it just never registered, but 
to the to the extent that it, I think every here's the deal: people have these expectations. They see this big vision in their head. That, oh, this guy could be the next Andre the Giant. Well, sometimes, you know, it's tough to be the second man on the moon. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, the first man on the moon, it's like, holy crap, he planted the flag. It's the first footprint. Oh, my gosh, the entire world is paying attention. How many people remember the second man on the moon? Just, eh. It, it's cool. You're still the second man on the moon. My God, you did it. It's an extraordinary feat, but you're not first. And to position Paul White as the next Andre the Giant when he – really wasn't and there was no real connection other than what we tried to create number one you're kind of less than go back to you know one of the things that helped me really figure out how to launch nitro and and you know how do i create this animal called nitro that could possibly be competitive with wwe and i said i locked myself in a room with a a, a yellow legal pad and a pencil or a pen and i said okay i can either be better than the wwf which I couldn't be. They were too good at what they did. I could be different than the WWF, or I can be less than the WWF. You really have three choices. And and that same kind of psychology applies to, I think, characters and talent. You get a guy like Paul White, and you, you um, automatically, creatively at least, you know, you're, you're aligning him, comparing him, associating him with Andre the Giant. Well, Andre the Giant was the first and the biggest and the best. So Paul White either had to be better than or different than. And we didn't find a way to make him better than Andre the Giant. And unfortunately, and this is where the flaw really was, is we didn't find a way to make him different than Andre the Giant. We tried to we tried to make him similar to. We tried to make him better than. And that was the creative mistake. You can't do that, especially with a legendary character like Andre the Giant. It's impossible. So the, the, the creative choice to make him kind of a version of Andre the Giant automatically landed him in the third category. He was less than. He wasn't better. He wasn't different. By default, he was less than. And looking back at it now, I mean, that that creative kind of construct is forefront in my mind. Now, 20 years later, with a lot more experience and, and a better feel for this, this type of thing. But I think if we would have taken the time to go, wait a minute, he's not going to be the next Andre the Giant. He's just not because he wasn't first. He can't be. No matter how great he was, and, and arguably, this is personal opinion, personal perspective, arguably, I would say that Paul White was a better athlete, was capable of doing more physically than Andre was. I, I don't even think it's a subject for debate. I think most people that, if you actually compared the two, would readily agree that Paul White, athletically speaking, was miles ahead of whatever Andre could do with the ring. But it didn't matter. We we didn't take advantage of that. We tried to make him like a copy, a, a version of Andre. And like I said, by default, he was less than because he wasn't first. And, and I feel bad about that. I feel bad. I really do. I, I Yeah, I want to kick myself in the ass for not knowing then what I know now. But you knew a lot about the public enemy. Another top act from ECW. 
they come over here and, uh, you know, I know that they've sort of become a, a footnote in history and they had a little interesting debut in the WWF and that sort of becomes the only story that's told about the public enemy, but this is definitely a transition time for WCW. When you guys bring public enemy in, it was like a Kevin Sullivan booking again, as he probably was somebody watching ECW. What did you think of the presentation, the gimmick? Uh, it, what can you tell us about the public enemy from your standpoint? It wasn't my cup of tea. I mean, it just wasn't, um, I look, one of the things that, you know, and I can't remember if Ted Turner said it directly to me or if I heard him say it in a group of people at a meeting. I, I remember Ted saying it. I just can't remember exactly when it was. But, you know, the message from Ted was, look, I don't program TBS for my tastes. I don't program TNT for my tastes. I program it for the audience's taste. And I think that's an important thing, even, you know, whether you're a writer, a producer, a director – whatever you are in the entertainment business, it's really easy to write for yourself or to produce for yourself. But unfortunately, in some cases, you're producing for an audience of one. You know, just because I like a certain type of a match, we've talked about this before, right? doesn't mean that everybody else does. And just because I hate a certain type of match or I not really click with a certain character you know, we, we talk about Raven all the time. Public Enemy, to me, fell in the same category. They were a little bit different. You know, I, I saw a little bit of a different um, energy or, or, or chemistry, I guess, you know, from Public Enemy. They weren't as dark uh, as Raven was as a character. Um, but they still had that kind of – they were an up level from Nasty Boys. You know, if Nasty Boys were the shit in the 80s, you know, Public Enemy was the shit in the 90s. They were like an evolution of that Nasty Boy type of character uh, or characters. Uh, so I, I got it. I didn't really like it, but I also knew that the audience may. So we, we went with it. What's our time code right now, Bo? Uh, we are at 3726, 27, 28, 29, 3730. We see the uh, high voltage crew really taking it to public enemy. And Meltzer would even write about this. And I found this in my research to be interesting. Uh, the gimmick they were working is that voltage are so green, they're clueless and the guidance expect them to get a manager and then a push. Was that ever discussed? Do you remember like uh, who would have been a manager for high voltage? Would that have been a. Vandenberg or a Jimmy Hart or what were we? Oh, it had at? to be Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart was everybody's manager. It had to be Jimmy Hart. Fascinating to me that <laughs> we got to have somebody get high voltage over. I got an idea. Let's get Jimmy Hart in here with some of this airbrush shit. That'll work. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. That high squeaky voice and that megaphone. How could you not get them over? Here's something I bet you didn't know. Did you know that Matt Hardy has claimed that, uh, you guys stole the name high voltage from him <laughs> real life. He, uh, he sent in a videotape to the power plant trying to get hired and he was doing a gimmick where he called himself high voltage. And he did a series of promos. And of course there's some match clips in there too. It was in ring work, but he's doing a series of promos as high voltage and Canyon told him years later 
when they were together in the WWF that he, like he was in the room. Canyon was when, uh, they played the tape and somebody said, oh, we're stealing that. And these guys, well, who was it? Come on. Name names. Who said that? I, it's a cool story, bro. But if we don't name names and we don't know who actually said, Hey, we're stealing that. Come on. We're going to leave people hanging. Who was it? I'm glad you said that. So back about Terry Taylor, what did he have an appetite for specifically? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it interesting how Terry Taylor becomes the nexus of these types of conversations? Yeah. He's one of the most fascinating people in the history of wrestling. Yeah. Fascinating is a good word. I'm just saying it's an interesting, I mean, everybody's got a Terry Taylor story. Do you know that when he gets his nails done, he has them polished and lacquered? Bruce Pritchard told me that the other day. I found out Bruce and, and, and his wife, Stephanie, and my wife, Lori, and I went out to dinner here in Stanford last week. And of all things we ended up talking about over dinner was manicures. And and my wife, who's always wanted me to get one, and I refused to get it. Well, one. you know Bruce gets them all the time. He gets them all the time. He sent me pictures last week of his most recent manicure. And he was weird. telling me how relaxing it is and how, you know, how awesome it is. And I, and I looked at his fingernails and I went, dude, you do really have cool fingernails. I mean, it's pretty awesome, but it's not like, you know, when I have free time, like I, I ain't getting, getting a, no, getting a manicure is like no. way the fuck at the bottom of my list of shit to do. But he was convincing me that I should get one. And then he brought up Terry Taylor's. And when Bruce Pritchard said, hey, if you're going to get a manicure, get them short, round, and buff. Evidently, that's something that you would say to the person that's giving you a manicure. You would say short, round, and buff. Kind of lends itself to a wrestling character, but whatever. And, And I said, short, round, and buff. Well, what are the other options? And he said, well, Terry Taylor, when he gets his done, he gets them squared and lacquered. I said, lacquered? You mean like nail polish? He goes, yes, lacquered, like nail polish. And I thought, well, that's just fucking weird. Anyway, enough of that. Are you really? I don't know what's happening to my friends. They're they're moving to the Northeast. They're getting fucking manicures. I'm not. You should see my nails. They look like I was out there changing tires on a semi-truck. My hands are all beat to shit. No, I'm not getting my nails manicured. I'm not going that far. I'm going to look, I'm tagging into the Stanford WWE thing. I get the culture. I've got some custom suits on the way. I got really nice shoes. I look like a GQ kind of a dude when I walk in WWE headquarters. And I get that because, you know, I'm part of management. You have to set an example. It's all about perception. I get that when I show up that we're recording this on, on a Saturday tomorrow, I'm heading off to Toronto to be a part of SummerSlam and, you know, be behind the scenes and meet some people and, you know, do my thing. And I am going to look like a zillion bucks. My fingernails won't. Yeah. The Nitro girl's wearing it out. There's Nitro some, uh, girl's there wearing me out right now. That is some hot shit we're looking at. Right how, now. how about Alex Wright right there? You think he gets manicures? Uh, I'm guessing he probably does. You know why Bruce really gets manicures? Legit. Why? Vince McMahon. When he, when he was first coming up, you know, he would uh, follow Vince around and take notes and they were working on bookings all the time and blah, blah, blah. He would even follow Vince to the nail shop and Vince would get his nails done. 
So now Bruce thinks, oh, Vince did it. So it's cool. He won't tell you that, but that's the real deal. He gets his nails done because it's cool. If you've been to our live something to wrestle shows, you've heard Vince uh, manicure stories before. That's just uh, that's his move. So here you see Alex Wright strutting that ass out here with the, uh, I think he's rocking the cruiserweight belt there. And uh, Mean Gene, double-breasted, suited, and booted. I miss Mean Gene. I do too, but I miss double-breasted suits. You want to hear another story about me coming to Stanford? I'm ready. I, I told you earlier, I didn't have any suits. I actually did have three really cool suits. I bought them in 2003. I, I, I was living in Santa Monica, California at the time. That's where my office was. I had an apartment in Santa Monica. I had my home in Phoenix. Spent most of my time in Santa Monica, and there was this really cool, I think it was called Bernini or some Italian you know, high-end clothing place. And I went there, and I bought like three or four really Badass suits. They were like fifteen hundred dollar suits, two thousand two thousand dollar suits. This is back in, like I said, two thousand three. Badass suits. So when you know Bruce said, "Hey, you know, ready to go back to work? You know, take a meeting with Vince." I thought, "Sure, I got a suit," and they're double breasted. Oh no! Yeah, I. So now I've got like five thousand dollars worth of suits in my closet that I can't wear because they're out of fashion. They're double breasted suits, but I decided to keep them because you They'll know come back. what's old is new again. Yeah, in another three or four years, as long as I don't get like Yokozuna size with all these great restaurants that are around my apartment building, which could fucking happen. Just going on record and saying that right now, um, I've got like some really cool badass Italian suits. You should send those uh, suits to Tony Schiavone. He'll wear them. He don't care if double breasted's in or not. He loves it. Tony is a fashion statement. He's a walking, talking fashion statement. He creates fashion. If Tony wears a double-breasted suit, despite the fact that they've been out of style for about nine years, if Tony wore one, he would change the dynamic of fashion for men. God, I'm full of shit. You, you are and speaking of full of shit. Here's Scotty Riggs, listener to the show. He's going to be, uh, trying to challenge for the cruiser title against Alex right here. It's an interesting time for the cruiserweight division, because I think about the cruiserweight title and I think about Jericho and Mysterio and Hooventude Malenko. I don't necessarily think about Alex, Wright Or Scotty Riggs. No. This is this is bad booking one-on-one. This is what you don't want to do. You create something as cool as a cruiserweight. You bring in all these international superstars. They change the way the product is presented in the ring with their high-flying kind of aerial, technical, amazing skill sets that you can't see anywhere else. And then you go to Scotty fucking Riggs and Alex Wright, both of whom I have a tremendous amount of respect for. More Alex than Scotty. Scotty Riggs has less personality than Lance Storm, which is saying a lot. But nonetheless, this is not a cruiserweight match. This is horrible booking. My fault. My bad. On me. But it is what it is. This is just the shits. (laughs) We should mention that... uh... What's not the shits are our ticket sales. You guys put tickets on sale for 11 cities in the same week, uh, around this time you had, uh, nitro on September 29th and Worcester and your first day, you sell 157 grand worth of tickets. You've got a house show in Chicago. And in the first day, 94 grand, 
You've got a nitro in Milwaukee, 120, uh, 112 grand day one. But then interestingly enough, clash of the champions, which you sort of talked about earlier, is really becoming less of a priority than nitro. The first day there only sells 2,400 tickets, $49,000. It's amazing to me that nitros are the hot property and no one cares about WCW Saturday night, which is essentially what clash of the champions had become it, it, you know, once upon a time clash of the champions was the WCW version of a Saturday night's main event. It was a big special event and pay-per-view quality matches and you don't want to miss it, but now television's changed and you get pay-per-view quality matches every Monday. So this is sort of the flagship and WCW Saturday night is still around and clash of the champions is too, but clash feels a little more Saturday night ish than nitro ish. Definitely. And I think that, you know, when we all hear, especially if you're in sales and marketing and, or any related business, you all hear the term brand kind of bantied about on a regular basis. And, you know, to the point where nobody really knows what it means, but I think this is a perfect example of how Nitro was indeed a brand. It had its own personality, sure. it had its own message. It was unpredictable. It was action-packed. It was groundbreaking. It was innovative. There was always surprises. All of the elements, all the, the, the attributes that made Nitro so successful didn't necessarily cross over to the other WCW-related properties. Clash of the Champions just didn't have that same identity. And, you know, we talked about it earlier on in this this podcast, but I think that's a perfect example of why. Just because it was a WCW product didn't mean that it had the same patina or the same energy or power of Nitro. Nitro was a WCW property, so was the Clash of the Champions. One was pop culture, energy, everybody. It was must-see TV back in the day. Clash, WCW property, not so much. Same talent, by the way. And that's what's really funny, you know, when you look at it. It wasn't the talent so much that drove the, the, the strength of Nitro because it was the same talent on Clash of the Champions for the most part. It was just the, the energy and the identity of the brand Nitro. The positioning, really. I mean, if you if you package something as special and important, it's it feels special and important. And when you don't, it's not. Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, not to you know beat this into the ground, but you know, there were elements of Nitro that made it unique. You know, this go back and you know, talked about this before. I don't want to be redundant, but you know, nitro inherently had surprises that, that you could always expect to see the unexpected. Sometimes it was small. Sometimes those, those moments of surprises were small and, you know, seemingly insignificant, but oftentimes they were large, AKA Lex Luger. The very first thing I did was to make an impact with Lex Luger to communicate to the audience that when you turn into Nitro, there is a good chance you're going to see something you never expected to see. That's it. It's not, not, you know, super fucking complicated, right? But consistently we tried to, we couldn't always do it on the scale of Alex Luger, you know, surprisingly showing up. But if you, if you ask yourself, you know, when you're writing an episode, 
you know, what can we do in this episode that the audience isn't going to expect? Just start from there. Start from that premise. What can we do? And sometimes you could do something big and sometimes you could do something small. But as long as you consistently delivered on that, you know, promise, if you will, not that you stated it every week. We didn't go out and tell everybody we're going to surprise you every week. But in your writing and in your presentation, if you could figure out a way to do something to kind of service that need, you know, what does the audience need? What do they want? Why do they tune into this stuff? And if every week you could check that box, after a while, that becomes your identity and it becomes your brand kind of statement. And that's what the audience tunes in to expect. And that's why you get tuned in every week. Sorry, didn't mean to go off on a right television one-on-one tangent no listen our, our listeners to this show that's why they listen to this show is is to get you and talking about business and deep in the weeds as you like to say e- eric bischoff though is the guy who's making the decision to sort of format this show this way where we announced that it's luger and hogan in the main event it's a three-hour show we're going to get a one-hour head start on the competition we're live pal We're going to start reminding you that, Hey, by the way, we still have sting here. Here's the video package of what's going on. Sting. He's no longer surfer sting. Now he's crow sting and he's on a mission in the NWO. A little later, we see a package sort of breaking down Lex Luger and, and what he's, you know, bringing to the table. And we're constantly having from the desk, the announcers remind everybody that Lex Luger is just one human torture rack away from becoming world champion. And then we start the show. The very first thing we see is a promo from Hulk Hogan. And that's sort of bookended here by a promo with Lex Luger in a big spot like this, because I, I think we're probably near the crossover and we're trying to make sure people are staying tuned. What are we, what sort of forethought and, and scripting exists for say a Lex Luger promo here? Does does he, is he given something or does he work through it with Sullivan or Terry Taylor or somebody or what happens in this era? In terms of the content? Yeah. The content of the promo. No, the content of the promo Lex in particular, it would have been laid out for him. Lex wasn't, you know, an improv kind of a character. Some guys were, some guys weren't Lex, you know, was capable of going out and cutting a great promo, but generally needed a pretty um, clear direction. And he was, you know, he didn't get a, you know, a a word for word, you know, script like you would at a feature film or television show, but he was given pretty significant bullet points and direction. And he knew his story. You know, he, Lex had great talent. You know, he, he was better at cutting promos than some people gave him credit for, you know, during that time, but he still needed a pretty, pretty good direction. And of course, Sean Waltman out here as six going to be taking on Chris Benoit and, uh, these guys can, can throw down. So this should be a pretty competitive matchup, but I want to talk about the decision to go with Luger here. When did you guys make the decision? Obviously you're having conversations with Hulk about it. Did you have a conversation with Luger about it? When did Luger know he was going to win the big one here? Uh, probably not till, probably not for sure till day of. Um, and that's not because we weren't thinking ahead or because we didn't trust Lex or for any other reason than, um, as a general rule, 
because it was live and because we wanted to surprise the audience as best we could. Most of that stuff we kept pretty close to the vest. Unless it was absolutely necessary to share it, we didn't until the day of. And this is, you know, what are we going to go to Lux? Okay, Lux. But, you know, go to him a week beforehand because we wanted to make sure he was good with it. <laughs> Pretty sure we could have told him like 20 minutes before the match and he was going to go over and he'd have been just fine. Sure. But, um, no, we kept this stuff pretty close to the vest, like I said, just because we wanted to keep the element of, of surprise intact as, as best we could. And so he had people, you know, stooging stuff out to dirt sheet writers so they could stay in favor, but kind of used to that. Still exists to this day. Still exists to this day. What, leaks, you mean? Oh, God, yes. Oh, God. And most of them are so bad. They're so off. They're so ridiculous. But, you know, just part of the business, I guess. You have those, you know, peripheral kind of parasites that live off, you know, the, the, the fringes of the industry. And, and, and they live off rumors and innuendo, as you like to refer to it. And if they don't really have them, they make them up. What's your time code right now? We're at uh, 56 minutes and 18 seconds. We see six pull down Benoit from the tree of woe, uh, 5625, 5626. I loved Sean Waltman's leg drop. It's like a, a snap style leg drop. I think Chad Dawson with the revival is doing it a lot these days. I love their stuff. And I think a snap leg drop is, uh, a cool way to do one. It's amazing going back and looking at Sean Waltman and obviously, you know, Chris Benoit is just, you know, when you go back and you look at his matches, he was nothing short of amazing in, in so many ways. Uh, but man, so was Sean Waltman. I mean, we all give Sean a lot of props and a lot of credit and acknowledgement for how good he was because he really, really was. But man, when I go back and I look at some of the stuff, especially the things I'm looking at right now with him and Chris Benoit, Sean Waltman was nothing short of my opinion than amazing. Yeah. You know, way, way made, ahead of his time. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. In so many ways. And I've read recently that he's, he's officially retired. Yeah. Very quietly. Didn't want to make a big to do, but yeah, I think his last match was uh, WrestleMania weekend. He jumped at the chance to be in the ring with, Jushin Liger one last time. And of course, Liger's on his retirement tour this year. He's going to finish up at the Tokyo dome in January and what a career he's had. Just amazing. And it's so funny when, when I was in WCW and active, obviously in the industry, Sean Waltman was one of the people that I, not that I disliked him. I just never, never really connected to him. You know, we didn't hang out. He wasn't. He did his thing. I did my thing and whatever. There was, there was no heat there, but you know, now he's, he's one of my favorite people in the business. I, I really respect him for what he's overcome. He's been through a lot in yeah. his life and I admire people. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to, to be successful and to come out on top and make a lot of money or, you know, whatever, you know, be super successful in whatever you did, whether you're a teacher, a doctor, a cop, a firefighter, you know, some people have the good fortune to go through life and never have to overcome any really, really major challenges. And, and I, you know, 
I'm happy for people like that. But when, you know, I learn about, get to know people like Sean Waltman who have overcome so much. And I'm not just talking about what they've overcome in the industry, but who have overcome so much on so many different levels. Uh, those are the people that I just, I find myself really respecting and I'm grateful to have the relationship with Scott that I have today because he's, or Sean, I should say, um, that I have today because Sean Waltman to me is, you know, one of the success stories in, in the industry. Um, and is there a nicer guy? He's like one of the sweetest human beings ever. You know, it, and when I see him and what is it? Lula or Lulu or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. You got it. I mean, I just, I get a cheer in my, here's a guy, you know, slammed on his brakes and I, I don't know the story in detail, but saw this dog, you know, on the side of a road or whatever it was. I don't, not really clear on the story, but adopt this dog who had obviously been abused. And, <laughs> and now Sean doesn't go anywhere without that dog. I just, it's another reason I'm, I'm just in love with the guy. And just anybody that's got that big a heart, has got my heart. You know, he's such a cool dude. Well, and nobody had your heart quite like Mike Jones, the former Virgil. Now, Vincent, you kept him around for a long time because he had the fuck money. The meat sauce, he had it all, didn't he? I guess, you know, I'm not sure how that <laughs> happens. <laughs> uh, Meltzer would write this up by saying Vincent sucks literally, but it was short. Well, yeah. Meltzer, if anybody knows what sucks, you know, Meltzer would. How badass did uh Booker T and Stevie Ray look? Well, they look badass because they were badass. See, isn't that funny how that works? I mean, they, they were, you know, didn't have to act much. That's, I got to tell you, and again, I keep, I hate to keep, you know, going back to this kind of thing, but they're two of my favorite people. You know, at Sarcast when I was there um, for your event last time, I got to be a part of um, Stevie Ray's podcast, and you know, it wasn't like we didn't have a huge turnout. It wasn't a big, you know, big damn deal. But I had so much fun doing it. What I had, the most fun of, that I had doing it wasn't actually doing it. You know, the show itself was all of the. I talked to Stevie probably. What the hell was that? I talked to Stevie about a dozen times before the show. You know, and he was giving me his ideas and his plans, and he was so passionate about it. He's he's such a cool dude. Booker, I you know I see Booker on a regular basis, and he's always great. But Stevie is, Stevie's a great guy. This is, uh, I mean, I'm not saying this to be funny. What the fuck was Vincent on the payroll for? For real? What, what purpose did he serve? I'm not really sure. You know, I, I wish I... <laughs> I know, right? It's like, uh, you know, it, I like when sometimes you just put your guns down. You're like, I don't know. That was, that really was dumb. I don't know. Well, well I mean, look, I, you know, we're looking back at 20 some odd years ago and I made a lot of stupid decisions and I made some bad mistakes and I'm good with it. You know, I'm, I know people expect me to go defend shit all the time, but some shit's just, just indefensible. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, here's the other side of the coin. I did a lot of great shit. 
I did. Oh, no, I know yeah, I did. Sure. I came up with some great ideas. I changed the business. I revolutionized shit, you know, and I, you know, I'm proud of what I did, but I'm not so proud of what I did that I ignore the fact that along the way I did some really stupid shit. Well, one of the things you did that wasn't stupid was pushing DDP. This is his breakout year. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the way DDP carried himself when you first come to the business and, uh, you know, he's got every gimmick in the world. He's chewing gum and smoking a cigar and has a toothpick, toothpick in his mouth and a headset and sunglasses and a hat. And so, and, and some of the ugliest strippers as valets I've ever seen. Yeah, me- he brought a he brought a couple to the ring that were just like, just snagglepuss. I mean, they were just like, Arr. I don't, I didn't, I never got that. When I first got, got to WCW, he had these valets that he would, you know, meet at the local strip club. There, and I, they'd show up, and it was like, really, really, you want to put them on TV, really? But he, you know, his taste got better as he got older. Well, he married up, roll title he- now. Good for him. Sure did. Some of us isn't that fun, isn't that funny though? How many, myself included, I married up big time. So did you, by the way. Sure. And I look at Sonny Ono, and and his wife Julie is absolutely stunning to this day, stunning. And there's something about, you know, guys in this business that just have an ability to marry up, and it's not about money. It's not that. But no, we can sell bullshit. That's I guess the, so. I mean, you, if you, you sold somebody on, on a six figure salary for Vincent, I'm pretty sure you can tell you can sell a living arrangement. <laughs> you just, I, you know, I took a bullet for that. I laid down in front of the fucking train. I let it run me over and you got to just recall that you got to bring you it know, back. People think I'm being too soft on you since you resigned because I haven't yelled at you yet. And you haven't given me anything. I'm like, he's not arguing anymore. When when he digs his heels in on something dumb, we'll, we'll do it for you, but I'm not just going to fake an argument. So I'm just going to keep goading you until you, you give me one. Uh, we'll get there. <laughs> this, this is, this is a long episode, motherfucker. I'm sure we'll find a way. <laughs> so here comes barbarian. I can't believe this is, uh, this is all the same show. There's just so much going on here. We're going to have wrath and barbarian. And what Meltzer would call a bad match, but it's only three minutes. Right, but then we've got something interesting that I never really saw coming. Any good, uh, wrath or barbarian stories. The only barbarian story I know we probably shouldn't tell. No, I've heard that same story. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are not going to be crass for the sake of being crass. No, we're going to tell that story. And, and no, I don't really have any good wrath stories. The only thing I will say is, what was the manager's name here? James Vandenberg. Ugh. Ugh. Not, not a fan? No. No. Wasted breath. Sucked up valuable oxygen for no good reason. Wow. How about that? No. Not a fan. Never was. Well, you know, and again, I got to be careful. No, you don't. It's Maybe better some when people you're not. dug it. Some people thought it was cool. That whole demonic, you know, Satan kind of bullshit. Just, it was so unimaginative and ineffective. Now this, you know, mask that Wrath is wearing is pretty badass. This hooded thing with the horns coming out. You know. 
I guess it looks like some kind of a Mongolian hairpiece or whatever it was. But, you know, the whole the manager thing, nah, I don't get it. And, you know, he wasn't a great talker. He just wasn't. Um, he was trying to put himself over all the time, not put his talent over. Um, so, no, it's just wasted space, in my opinion. Uh, of course, Dr. James Mitchell, big listener of the show. Thanks for listening, Jim. Hey, Jim. Sorry about that. <laughs> just speaking of, speaking of truth, brother. So uh, I, I wasn't watching much during the time, but when you pop up in TNA, is he there? And is, uh, did you help run him off? Is that part of that deal? No, he was already gone when I got there, but had he been there, he would have been gone shortly thereafter. I mean, I say that uh, that was a joke. That was me trying to be funny and smarky, but um, he had already left. And you know, when I was in TNA, I didn't have the ability to hire or fire anybody. That's just a fact. Um, despite what you've read in dirt sheets and, you know, other publications or online or in Reddit, or wherever the fuck you get your useless information from. Um, but he was already gone when I got there. Thank God. Rath was a big dude, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, he was. When you're putting together a show like this, you know, obviously television and the way it's put together for wrestling has changed quite a bit. How far in advance would you have a format? Like, do you get a, would you get like a look at it and at the office in Atlanta on like a Thursday or did you have a, a first draft before that? Or what's that well, look first, like? First drafts usually came on Fridays. We had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do. And then Monday, you'd probably get together about one o'clock in the afternoon and make sure everything was holding up. Um, hold on one second. Um, you make sure everything was kind of holding up, uh, make whatever adjustments you had to make. And then by the time everybody started getting really serious about shit and you started retiming the show accordingly, um, last round of changes would come in around five or so. And that's, that was typical. As there a Reminder here, we're at one hour, nine minutes, 28 seconds. Wrath, hopefully about to put away the barbarian. This is, uh, this feels like a match that could have happened in 97 or 87 or 77. Big, slower, plotting, methodical wrestling here. Yeah. True, not going to argue that, but you're looking at two pretty massive guys. I mean, oh, no, no, I'm not arguing. He's going to be doing hurricanes off the top rope at this point. Um, I mean, that's you know, the nature of big man wrestling. Did I lose you in that? No, not at all. Okay, and there's the finish, not a good one, but it happened, not a good one at all. But here's what, okay, so here's the next chapter. We're setting it up. Awesome stare down. Intense. Jim Mitchell pointing a stern, strong finger in the eyes of Haku. Oh. 
So coming up next, we're going to have uh, a segment with the Steiner brothers, Ted DiBiase, where DiBiase is going to be introduced as their new manager. And somewhere in the promo here, he's going to almost, I mean, out of habit, I'm sure, accidentally refer to the tag titles as the WWF tag titles. What's your time code? I just want to make sure I'm on track here. Uh, I'm behind you. I'm at one 11, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, eleven thirty one. I still love the uh, presentation of wrath. You know, I felt like the uh, character maybe wasn't as well-rounded as maybe as it could have been, but I think that whole blood runs cold thing was probably sidetracked a little bit when the NWO took over, but. The presentation of wrath was at least different and cool and interesting. And, uh, there's been a few different presentations of the Steiner brothers. No longer are they wearing the old, uh, Michigan letterman jackets. Now they're rocking like a patent leather look here. And Scott's got rid of the mullet and now he's, I guess he's still kind of got it, but he's got it in a ponytail and got the goatee and, and how about preacher man? He's just, uh, this is the era we should mention that they just released, uh, Ted DiBiase's book. Everybody, uh, everyone has a price. He would go on tour all over the country at different churches and college telling his story and talking about how making a bunch of money in the WWF ruined his life. I don't know how making a bunch of money could ruin your life. I mean, I get it. You know, if you have a lot of money, it gives you the opportunity to make a bad choices and, and make a lot of bad decisions. So I, I, I guess I get it. Um, but I think if you're prone to make those bad choices and bad decisions, you probably would make them anyway. You just have to do it on a budget. Well, it's the lifestyle. Of course, he's talking about being on the road and away from your family and you're on TV. So you're getting a lot of attention from folks and. Some of those folks you probably shouldn't be hanging out with because of drugs or alcohol or vagina, whatever. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. I was thinking it, but you said it. Well, I mean, it was easier than saying, you know, yeah. Hey, when, when DiBiase became Terry Taylor, he didn't like it. So he wrote a book about <laughs> it. Everyone has a price. There you go. I actually saw that he came to my uh, community college and spoke and, uh, I was in high school at the time, but I went down to the community college and heard his testimony and he was selling books after and doing meet and greets and he had a packed house. Ted DiBiase was still very much a draw and, you know, we don't talk about this very much, but I gotta tell you, I was really surprised at Starcast too. He was one of the top sellers. For whatever reason, that million dollar man character really resonated with folks my age. Well, yeah, it's one of the great things about the WWE network is, I mean, I've said this before, um, you know, I go to autograph signings and, and, and been to events and things like that, where comic cons and such, where I have these like 10 year old kids that come up and, you know, they're excited to get my autograph. And I, you know, I, I start thinking about it and go, wait a minute. You're 10 years old. I kind of have been off TV for 15 years or so. How does it work? And 
it's a WWE network. You know, the, especially I think with wrestling fans more so than any other form of entertainment, they, they just they're hooked on the history and the legacy. And, and wrestling fans are, I don't want to say obsessive compulsive fans because that puts them in a negative light, but they're you know like NASCAR fans are so intimate with the sport in the in, in the genre, and I think you know fans of sports entertainment are even more so, you know, ergo, therefore, you know, 10 year old kid coming up to ask someone like me for an autograph and have a picture when they weren't even a gleam in their parents' eye when I was actually active on television. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think a guy like Ted DiBiase, to your point, you know, even in Starcast to this day is always going to be a big draw is because he's, you know, he's got such a great legacy. He was around during the heyday of the eighties and the nineties and, you know, people want to be close and talk to people and get to know people like that. And thank God for that. Right? You wouldn't be doing a sarcasm if that wasn't the case. No, that's exactly right. And uh shameless plug, if you would like to uh see everything that's happened at Starcast, when you pre order Starcast three before August nineteenth, you get everything from Starcast one and two included. So it's like 70 hours worth of content. So go check it out at Starcast on fight. You just need to pre-order it by the 19th and you'll get all three shows. Where is this year's Starcast anyway? The next one, I should say Chicago. It's at the end Chicago. of the month. Yeah. Back where it all began and, uh, our headlining events each day will be uh, a one man sit down with Tony Schiavone and Cody Rhodes. And then the next day it'll be Jr. and John Moxley. And then on the third day. Uh, sort of the, the home run, the big coup I was able to pull off this time, CM Punk doing something in the wrestling space again. He'll have a live mic and in his hometown of Chicago. I'm pretty sure that'll make some news. Wow. That's pretty badass. You're putting this shit together, dude. Well, I appreciate that. Rocking and you're rolling. Well, you know, I mean, I don't have Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff at Starcast. I had to come up with something, so. Uh, I slid what do you, you mean? I'm not, am, am I not there? Am I not on the bill? Oh, I didn't think you were allowed to come anymore. No, probably not. <laughs> especially, especially with all the affirmation names. It's like, fuck you. I'm not going there. Yeah. I don't need that kind of heat. Oh my God. Yeah. So somehow, you know, I lost Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff. I'm sliding in John Moxley and CM Punk. Pray for me, brother. Oh, I feel bad for you. No, it's going to be an uphill battle, man. I'm going to do my best. I know. Well, good luck. Good luck. Thank you. We're on the road. If you need, if you need me to do a run in, I'll see if I can get that by (laughs) Mark Carano. I'll call talent relations and see if I can get, see if I can get a permission to do a run in to help save your show. Yeah. He doesn't respond to my text messages anymore. Surprise. I sent him an email today. He didn't respond to mine either. So you and I are in the same boat. Yeah. We're both, we're both, uh, for, for F O F we're friends of Bruce, you know? No, actually I think it's because he was on a plane to Toronto. So I'll, I'm oh. not going to take it personally. Lee Marshall. Uh, I only knew him from wrestling and years later I learned that, uh, even without wrestling, he was doing great. You know, I, I heard a Tony, the tiger commercial about a month ago and i think they're still using lee's voice isn't that something lee was lee was 
Lee was great. We ended up being really good friends. But you know, when we started up, when I first met Lee, he was Lee was the play-by-play announcer for Vern Gagne in AWA when I first started. And there was shortly after I first started, there was something that Vern wanted me to do. I, I think it was on camera. We were in Chicago at an event. I'll never. I remember being in the arena. I don't remember what it is that Vern wanted me to do on camera with Lee. It was something very insignificant. And Lee looked at me with just such disdain. He looked at me and goes, <laughs> choir boy. And, you know, I thought, what the fuck? What did I ever do to you? You know, it was like, like you didn't have any time for me. And then obviously later on, you know, we started working together. We got along great. And I ended up hiring him to, you know, come to work for WCW. And he still called me to, till the day he died. He still called me choir boy. <laughs> Just a little note. What's, I what, what's up with that? What do you think? I, you know, well, I certainly wasn't a choir boy, so that wasn't it. But I think, you know, it was kind of like the uh, Ken doll thing, you know, because uh, the way I looked, yeah. you know, at the time, uh, he, <laughs> certainly he wouldn't call me that now. But I, I think it was just because of the way I looked at the time. You know, it was kind of like hard hard to say this, but too perfect to be real. Oh, my <laughs> God. Listen to you. No, but it was true. I mean, look at me. You go back and look at, you know, the early Eric Bischoff on television. And I was I looked looked too perfect to be real. I wasn't. I was a marginal talent. I made a lot of mistakes. But visually, I was like I, I looked like I walked right off of front page of a Sears catalog. I I don't even know what to say right now. I'm so well, glad you can, you can just say it's true. And then we're done with it. You don't have to fucking deal with it. You don't have to make a big damn deal of it. You can say, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you think we're not making that a shirt too perfect to be real. God, damn. I, no, well, we should make it a shirt. And here's the funny thing. It's true. It's like in comedy, the best jokes are based in truth. The best t-shirts are based in fact. No brag. I'm not bragging. No brag. Just fact. That's where that t-shirt came from. I'm just telling the truth. That's not like I'm patting myself on the back. I was a fucking amazing looking young man. I was. I was. It didn't take any talent. I was born that way, for God's sake. I didn't have anything to do with it. I came out of the womb as a perfect looking person. It, it, it wasn't a talent. It wasn't something I worked at. I didn't have to study for it. I didn't have to work out for it. I just, it came naturally. I was perfect. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm giving you something to yell at me for, for God's sake. Just... If I set you up any harder or any more, any easier, it would be too easy for you. My God. By the way, I was such a huge psychosis fan. And he's just uh, getting squashed by our, our great close personal friend Conan here. But we're doing it because we're telling a story. You see Wildcat Willie in the back there as Ray is limping down on crutches. Sonny Ono wants him to release the hold too. Sonny crowd. has a big heart. He's always had a big heart. Look at the crowd, man. The crowd is into this. Everybody's on their feet, ready to see what's going to happen into the story they're into the action they're into the drama they're into the brand they're into the phenomenon that is monday nitro the brand of all brands 
the brand that changed the face of sports entertainment as we know it, the brand that forced the WWE to change the way they did business, the brand that made sports entertainment the most talked about form of entertainment in all of television. What a, what a fun little twist here. Of course, he's coming out showing that the knee is fine now. And he was playing possum this whole time breaks a crutch over Conan and dancing around Meltzer would say though, in actuality, his knee isn't fine. And there is some heat about him having to come back as soon as this week, as the company promised him two months off and cut it to five weeks because of nitros and the Mexico city trip for the documentary. He has to miss several days of rehab. Yeah, whatever. Fuck Meltzer. He's such a clown. But you like to drop his name in there. We're giving him free advertising. We're driving people to buy his shitty newsletter and subscription to his online dirt sheet. So whatever. I mean, he's just a dirt bag. Well, you're you're quarter hot about it today. No, I'm not. It just is what it is. We've been. Uh, I've maintained my position since what the first first episode we've ever done. Oh my gosh! Check this out, Silver King and Damien. Of course, we. Uh, we lost silver King. I can't believe that he's no longer with us, but this outfit that he's rocking here always looked like the Lawrence Fishburne character from Pee Wee's playhouse to me. And I loved it as a result. You know, I saw going back to silver King, um, and to get serious for a moment, I saw that footage, I guess about a week or two after uh, silver King passed away. I hadn't seen it and I got a chance to look at it and Oh boy, that was tough to watch. I, I feel badly for who and to, to this day. It just that was a really tough thing to see. If I'm honest with you, I'm kind of surprised you watched. Why? I don't know. I've never seen it. I don't want to watch it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I do want to say I was kind of half torn, but when someone you know, passes away like that in the ring. It, it, I don't know. I don't want to say I felt obligated to, but I need, I guess. To, and at the time that I watched it, I wasn't involved in the industry. So it wasn't like, I felt like I need to watch it professionally, but you know, how does something like that happen? How is right. it not an indication? How does someone not see that going down? Um, so that you could avoid, the worst case scenario. And I, I guess I was curious about that. It's not that I wanted to see it, you know, because I, I like watching that type of thing, but I, I just couldn't imagine that how it happened. You know, it's just, you know, I guess that's it. Look at this entrance. Ernest, the cat Miller and glacier doing kata kata in the middle of the ring. That's awesome. You know, it's weird because I really liked the presentation of wrath and I could get behind what you guys were trying to do with glacier. It does feel like it's maybe a few years too late now with this new layer of realism that the NWO was presented, but you know, in that whole dungeon of doom sort of era of WCW, that, that shit could have worked. You mean the wrath glacier thing? Yeah, the, the blood runs cold with Mortis and Glacier and Wrath and all that. Like, I, th- I I agree with you, bro. I think if that would have... I said, bro, God damn it. I'm gonna go back it's been a while. Be, you're, you're good for a bro every now and again. But like 94, 95, shit could have got over. 
Yeah, even before that, if in 93, 94, if we were to, you know, unleash that, I think it could, people would have a whole different feeling about it. And and honestly, Glacier's doing a hell of a job in the ring for a big guy. And, you know, that, here's the other thing about Glacier. People don't, Ray Lloyd, people don't realize how big he really is. Oh, yeah. You know, he's not a big, super imposing guy. He's not like six foot eight and, you know, 350 pounds. But you... You know, shake hands with that dude someday. You know, he—he's a solid, solid dude. And, you know, I, I'm not—I don't know how much he weighed, but I'm guessing he was two thirty-five, two forty, and he could move for a big guy. And the challenge for a guy as big as Ray too, when it comes to kicks, and Ernest Miller too. Ernest is another one. Ernest Miller is probably one of the best kickers that I've known in martial arts period. And to be as big as Ernest did, usually great kickers tend to be, they're like gymnasts, you know, the really good kickers, um, in, in martial arts tend to be the, the middleweights or the, you know, the, the light middleweights, uh, cruiserweight type to be you guys, 140, 150, 160 pounds. Those are the guys that can really, like gymnasts, they can do the things physically that bigger people can't do. For a big guy to be able to throw great kicks like Ernest did and, and Ray Lloyd Glacier, it's pretty impressive. Ernest, you know, people don't realize what a real badass Ernest Miller was and is to this day. He still competes. Ernest Miller could go. He is the real deal. People, you know, people talk about Ming and they talk about Scott Steiner and they talk about, you know, obviously Kurt Angle and guys that at that level. Uh, I'm, and I'm not trying to put, you know, Ernest Miller at Kurt's level by any stretch of the imagination. But when when it comes to being able to go in a street fight, Ernest Miller was a badass. It still is. And the nicest guy in the world. Nicest, most gentle, easygoing guy in the world. But he can, he can go. Let me ask you about uh, something that was written. This is the era where apparently, uh, you're going to be having a meeting soon at a meeting with the wrestlers last week, Eric Bischoff specifically said he doesn't want any bad words, vulgar or distasteful gestures on TV. There were complaints from the higher ups about these things. And among the new words banned for use on television is hosebag. Bischoff told the wrestlers to leave dirty words and vulgars to Vince McMahon. So we've talked about that before, but hosebag. I know I must've been under duress. <laughs> that, that clearly wasn't, I, I was, I was passing down the information I was given. <laughs> hosebag. Uh, I do want to talk about, um, Steven Regal. In the uh, Observer, two days after this episode, the status of Stephen Regal is questionable at press time. Regal was allegedly involved in some sort of disturbance on an airplane coming from the U.S. from Japan for the G1. We don't have any details, but allegedly Regal caused a major disturbance in first class, which caused the plane to have to make an emergency landing in Anchorage. A felony charge stemming from this could affect his working visa and cause him to be deported, which could cost him his job. Even if he's not deported, there was considerable internal speculation that his job was in jeopardy because of the incident. 
as the airlines don't react well to problems in the air that cause emergency landings. So that's like an understatement, but allegedly he, uh, exposes himself and urinates in first class. That's the rumor and innuendo. Is that what you heard? When did you hear it? And what's the proper response to something like that? Um, when did I hear it? I, I heard about it after the fact. What did I hear? I don't know. Probably something close to that report. What's the proper response? Dude, don't drink so much when you're flying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are you going to say? Right. I mean, what else is I mean, pretty much covers it, right? Yeah. Dude, just don't drink so much. You're in a fucking airplane. Don't do it. You know, I, I, I will tell a story, a, a short story. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Look at me coming out there. People loved me back then. Look at them. They're just the adoration. Look at that perfect human there. I know. Look at that perfect hair. God damn. I, I almost have a mullet. It's almost a mullet. So fucking what a great head of hair. Oh, my God. It's amazing. But I was on a flight coming back from Australia for an event that I promoted. I think it was in 2009. It was the Hulk Hogan Ric Flair tour in Australia. I put the deal together, flew everybody, got about first, got almost everybody on the card. <clears throat> I was able to negotiate first class airfares for. I think I did. I think everybody that came over had first class airfares. On Virgin Airlines, beautiful airline, absolutely fantastic service. And on the way home, I'm sitting in, in, in and on this Virgin Airline flight. Um, first class was separated. It was, you know, the front part of the plane and the second part of the first class section was separated by a bar. I mean, it was like a nice bar. It wasn't just like a little counter that you could pour beer at. I mean, it was like a nice bar you would find in a nice restaurant. And there was no bartender. You could go back and serve yourself. And I was sitting behind the, you know, behind that bar. I was sitting in the second section. It was like on the way home. It was like two or three in the morning or whatever. It was late night. And I got up. I had to use the restroom. And I got up, and there was, I'm not going to name the name, but there was a wrestler, a performer, not much of a performer, not much of a talent, but a talent, technically speaking taking a leak all over the bar. And I I was kind of half asleep. I wasn't really completely awake when I saw this and I was and I was in shock. I was like, what in what the hell? And this idiot turned around and he had this <laughs> like shit eating grin like a cartoon character. And it was just one of the most disgusting moments of my career. And I'm not sure why I brought that up other than you're bringing up the Steven Regal incident. But here's here's the bottom line. Don't drink so much when you're on a plane that you actually forget where the bathrooms are. I think that's probably what happened. So after this guy got done giggling, did he like cut it out? I mean, did he strut back to his seat? No, he was done. And here's the funny part of that story. So this individual who, you know, performed this disgusting act, um, and, and by the way, someone that I never worked with after that, I refuse to ever work with him again. Uh, and he's not a good representative of the industry at all. This is just a weirdo, you know, guy with a lot of other issues. But um, 
Prim- somebody else somebody else got blamed for it. <laughs> Brian Nobbs actually got Brian Nobbs was sound asleep when all this went on. But Brian had been so loud and obnoxious during the front end of the flight while everybody was still awake. Everybody assumed it was Brian. So Brian got all the heat for it. Which is really kind of funny in retrospect. When did you smarten up uh, uh the big brother as to who it was or wasn't? Oh, you mean Hulk? Yeah. Uh, probably when we landed. Yeah. Because the individual I just I I won't even and I'm not not saying his name because I, you know, I'm trying to protect him. I'm not saying his name because I think he's just a piece of garbage and I don't want to give him any acknowledgement. Um, but yeah, I let him know right away, like when we landed. So uh, let's talk about something else that's that's changed here um the big move at this point is to try to sell as many pay-per-views of course as you can we're, we're trying to build road wild and it's just this is really our go home edition of nitro for that show and the main event of that show is going to be the same match that we're presenting here in theory, I mean, that sort of goes against conventional booking wisdom. Now we know what the result of this is going to be. We're going to instead have a title switch here. So a rematch a few days later makes sense. Does anybody sort of raise their hand and say, Hey, we shouldn't switch the title here. We should do it on pay-per-view instead. Or as soon as everybody hears the idea, are, are they on board right away? I think everybody was on board right away. Look, Nitro became Nitro, became the success it was because we did everything you're not supposed to do in the wrestling business. We broke every convention, we, you know, starting with, you know, giving away main event quality, you know, matches on free TV instead of on pay-per-view. It's what got us to the dance, that many other things, but that being one of the primary reasons. So when it came to breaking convention and doing what normally isn't ever done, people were starting to get with it. And realize that if you want to change the business, if you want to take it to the next level, if if you want to grow it, you're going to have to do things that you didn't think you normally would do. It's the same today. I mean, it's the same. Look, nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed, the only thing that's not changed is everything changes. Music changes. Movies change. Television shows change. The way we watch entertainment changes. Politics change. Everything changes. Um, and and sports entertainment is no different. You have to change the way you present the product and the methods that you use to keep the audience's interest. We, again, I'm not, and I know this sounds like I'm putting myself over, and I know that I am in a way, but it's not my intent. You know, Nitro became Nitro and changed the industry because we did everything that everybody said you shouldn't do from your friend Dave Meltzer all the way up to our competition to the talent that was involved in it. Everybody buried everything that we did and said it was going, it was never going to work until it did. And, and, and even looking back at some of the things we're doing here, you know, the nitro girls dancing on the set, my God, who would have thought 10 years earlier, anybody would do that. It would have been unheard of, you know, now, you know, 20 years later, it's like, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. But 
we did so many things that nobody thought we should ever do. But to answer your question, yeah, there was some, you know, eyebrows raised. Well, why are you doing this? And I'm sure there were, you know, I'm sure people had questions that didn't articulate them to me. I'm sure people had concerns that they kept to themselves. But for the most part, everybody knew that we were willing to do do things differently. And we did. Tony Schiavone had one of his low-key best lines in the history of Nitro during this segment where the Nitro girls were dancing on the desk. He says, if my wife, if my wife is watching, tell her to go to bed. We're having fun. Give everybody a, uh, a timestamp, Eric. Tell everybody where we are. Well, I'll tell you where I am. I'm at one hour, 39 minutes and 22 seconds. Where are you? I'm getting caught up to you. Diamond Dallas page. Segment number two for DDP. Is there a better sort of, uh, feel good story in wrestling than the career of diamond Dallas page? Not really. I think when you look at it in totality, you know, and you put what you think of his character aside. You know, don't don't judge him by whether you think he was the greatest wrestler or deserved the shot or forget about the fact that he was my friend and some people think that the only reason he got those opportunities is because he was my friend. But just look at his story. You know, look at his life, look at his history, look at his commitment to the industry. You know, he he really made up his mind at a very late stage in his life that he wanted to do something really special in the ring when everybody around him, people that he respected said, you're nuts. You shouldn't do that. Don't try that. You, you've got a good, you've, you've got a good gig. DDP don't, you don't need to become a wrestler. Don't do that to yourself. And he did it and he worked his ass off and you know, did he become a John Cena or a Stone Cold Steve Austin or a rock or Hulk Hogan? No, he didn't. But did he become a name that people will respect and talk about for decades to come? Yes, he did. And how, I, I just don't know how you don't recognize him for that. Of course, what we're setting up here is uh, Diamond Dallas Page and the Nature Boy Ric Flair, who at this point is a 13-time world champion, getting a big reaction from the fans here in Detroit. It's weird because it feels like you know, the way wrestling crowds sort of look is different. Look at this crowd here. It feels like it's all dudes and really in the same age group. Whereas if maybe you went back and you looked at wrestling 10 years before or 10 years after this, the makeup of the crowd might look a little different. That is interesting, isn't it? You know, I, I think at the time from a demographic point of view, at least as, as far as television was concerned, we were probably 70% male, 30% female. Uh, but I'm not seeing that in the audience, as you point out. This is a very, th- this is a test fest, as they say, a testosterone festival. Uh, well, sausage party action? Yeah, well, yeah. Not, also, not a lot of kids. And this would, you know, this would go to the nature of the show, the, the, the way we presented it, the type of show, the, the type of storylines. It was more reality-based. There wasn't a lot of animated-type characters. You know, we did see some of them, and, and Mortis and Glacier and, and 
psychosis and, and all of that. But for the most part, the bulk of our content was reality-based and more, you know, reality-based storylines. I do want to talk to you a little bit about Stevie Richards. Um, I know we, we saw him at the top of the show here, but he's in the middle of, uh, a lawsuit with you guys. Uh, this is directly from the newsletter on the lawsuit front in regard to the proposed suit against WCW mentioned in last week's issue to the best of our knowledge, no lawsuit has been filed yet as of press time, but sources within WCW have made the following points in defense against the charges by ECW. They claim that Stevie Richards wasn't even under a contract and his intent to negotiate a deal with ECW expired on June 10th. And he never signed a new deal. He had used the name Stevie Richards before ever wrestling in ECW. So they have no right to claim the rights to that name. And they claim Scott Levy came up with the Raven name and character with the help of diamond Dallas page. And the page offered him to Paul Heyman more than two years ago. Heyman at first was reluctant, figuring Levy was going to establish a new gimmick and go back to the WWF, but Heyman was promised that Levy would stay a minimum of four months with the gimmick and wound up staying closer to two and a half years. Although Levy has acknowledged several times that he did sign a non-compete on a pay-per-view contract with Heyman that expires on October 13th, he claims to not have a copy of the contract, although the claim is that part of the deal is Heyman is acknowledging that all the intellectual and mark rights of the Raven character or Levy's and not ECW's, which would kill that point. And when Nick Lambros of WCW apparently asked Heyman to send a copy of that contract because they informed Heyman they were planning on using him on the July pay-per-view and the letter specifically stated that if Heyman didn't respond in 10 days, they were going to put Raven on the show and Heyman never responded nor sent WCW a copy of the contract which from a legal standpoint, because of the warning, WCW feels it was in the clear to use Levy on the show, a point agreed with about at least one contract lawyer I spoke with regarding that point. And Eric Bischoff in a prodigy chat with Bob Ryder basically acknowledged the same point. It's a last minute deal on the pay-per-view as the company was expecting Heyman to spring the contract on them at the last minute. And, uh, the Raven Richards segment would have been scrapped from the show if that was the case, but it wasn't. So this is a, another one of those, you know, famous Paul Heyman stories. Is that the way it was sort of processed by you guys that now nah, we'll see it when we'll, we'll believe it when we see it type attitude. Yep. Yep. I mean, look, it's easy to threaten a lawsuit. It's easy to throw out, throw out a lot of terminology to you know make it sound like there's a lot of risk from a, a legal perspective, but you know, until you, until there's an action, you know, until there's a complaint, until something comes from the court, until there's actually a lawsuit, um, it's just all talk. It's just all rhetoric. It's all, it's like two drunk guys in a bar. <laughs> it's all it really is. So it didn't really take it too seriously. Hello. No, I'm with you here. We're watching Ric Flair and Diamond Alice Page do their thing. Mr. Perfect on the outside. It was uh, in the newsletters that in advance of this show, uh, the house show cards locally in the different markets on radio and whatnot, they had been promoting Kurt versus Rick. But that changes here, and, and that's no longer advertised. So a lot of people assume that 
maybe Kurt will wind up with a spot in the horseman, which we'll talk about later this month, because that does become a piece of the creative. And it's also sort of freestyle that perhaps Arn Anderson will be stepping in as more of a JJ Dillon type role for the four horsemen where, uh, you know, you, you've sort of admitted hindsight being what it is, even though it maybe wasn't your cup of tea fans were behind the horsemen in certain markets of the country. And it was a big deal to them. And perhaps they weren't as big of a focus as they could or should have been as sort of a heritage more legacy stable with the company. Did you have a favorite version of the horseman while you were there or all time, or was it just never really your thing? No. And I want to be really clear about that. Uh, it's not that I didn't respect what the horsemen were. It's not that I, I, I mean, I acknowledged it, but you know, in full transparency, it, it wasn't on my radar. You know, I, 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 you grew up What's on it? Minnesota wrestling. You didn't grow up in the Carolinas. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't see the NWA. I never even heard of the NWA. I know that sounds crazy in today's world, you know, with, with digital and streaming and all the online stuff. But, you know, go back to the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. Um, NWA, you know, I think the first time I remember hearing about it was probably in 90 or 91. I think the NWA actually came to, to Minnesota, to Minneapolis to promote an event. And that was really the first time I had heard of it. I, I think I had heard of it, you know, kind of uh, tangentially through the AWA when somebody from NWA was acknowledged in some way, shape, or form. But for the most part, it was way the fuck off my radar screen when the Four Horsemen were really hot. Uh, that doesn't mean that I didn't respect them or it wasn't my cup of tea. It just means what part of my life. Um, and I think later on in WCW, and this is no secret, you know, I was trying desperately to get away from the legacy of the NWA and the Southern kind of regional vibe that WCW had, not because it was, because I didn't like it necessarily, not because I, 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 I looked down on it. It was because it there was a lot of adverse things associated with it. WCW had a horrible brand legacy when I inherited it. It was this, the distant number two, the dysfunctional company. I mean, it had gone through a lot of really horrible, it was not too much different than, you know, what we saw with TNA, it, it, you know, towards the end. It failed attempts to resurrect the brand. You know, that's what I inherited. And my goal was to distance myself from that. So while I may not have been anxious to associate myself with some of the legacy um, uh, brands or, or, or talents, you know, from that era, uh, it wasn't because I didn't appreciate them or respect them. It was because I felt we needed to move forward and not backward. You know, there was there were certain exceptions to that. Ric Flair being one of them. Um, while I was trying to present WCW under my watch, at least as a new era, a new version of WCW. It doesn't mean that I wasn't aware of the fact that guys like Ric Flair and, and certain others aren't Arn Anderson being another one didn't bring a tremendous amount of value because I also recognize that there were a lot of fans, you know, in the Southeast that were a big part of our core audience and I didn't want to alienate them. I didn't want to just turn my back on them. But at the same time, I couldn't saturate 
my new audience with some of those legacies because they weren't relevant any longer uh, to a, a newer, broader audience who, like me, weren't necessarily huge fans of the NWA back in the 70s, and 80s, and 90s. And that's, you know, it's one of the choices you have to make, I guess, when you're trying to grow an audience and you're bringing new people into your, your product and attracting new people to your brand. A lot of those new people don't know the Four Horsemen or weren't aware of them. I mean, let's face it. You know, when WCW Saturday Night was at its peak, I don't remember what the you know ratings were, but there were probably a million, million and a half, two million people maybe, whatever they were. I'm sure somebody's going to be able to tell me who that is on my social media feed very quickly. But when Nitro got hot, we tripled, maybe quadrupled those numbers. And those numbers didn't come from NWA wrestling fans. They didn't come from the Southeast. They came from the rest of the, the audience, the rest of you know, the United States. And those people didn't have the same connection to some of those legacy NWA brands. So it's, I just want to make it clear in that long-winded, weedy answer, it's not that I it wasn't my cup of tea or that I didn't respect them. It's just they were no longer relevant to the direction we were going. Well, we've got, uh, and this is the weird part about programming a wrestling show, you know, sort of talk me through, you know, when you're formatting a show, how we bounce around where, you know, we had page and flair, I guess we should back it up a little bit. We had an in-ring interview with JJ Dylan and Eric Bischoff. You, you tell JJ that you're going to kick Larry's Abisco right between the eyes and uh, then Ric Flair and, and Dallas page have a match. And now we've got the Volanos and Hector Garza and Liz Mark jr. I mean, we're, mo- we're moving a lot of ground here, different style matches in ring interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a, a formula for, you know, sort of switching it up and not having more of the same. Cause this placement in the third hour of the show, I got to tell you, is like, what the fuck is this? I'm not sure. I understand your question. I mean, there was a couple of questions in there. Is there a method or, or, or- yeah, like how do the Volanos and, and Liz Mark jr. And Hector Garza, who would normally be the, one of the first two matches on nitro or somewhere on main event or Saturday night or enhancement talent for, you know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash to chop up, whatever. Instead there have, I mean, there's four luchadors here that were never really pushed as single stars or, or significantly in the third hour. And you see the crowd just sort of, whereas they were all on their feet for flair, everybody's just politely waiting for this one to end. You know, I mean, that's, that's an interesting observation. You know, the, the other side of that coin is if you want to grow your roster, if you want to, to, to change the perception of your brand, if you want to introduce new talent, you actually have to do it. Right. You, you can't just use talent. I mean, you, you laid it out. Typically, we'd see these guys in the first hour when it's not as important. Typically, they'd be doing jobs for other big-name talent. Yeah, you're right. Typically, they would. Or you do something to try to get them over. Right. If and, and I've said this a million times during this 
you know, the time we've been doing this podcast. One of the biggest things that I think that made Nitro successful is as successful it was in 97 is we had a much more international feel and we treated international talent, in this case, Hispanic talent. We treated them like stars. We gave them television time. We didn't just regulate them to a quick match in the first hour. We didn't just use them as job guys and enhancement talent. We actually gave them matches during, you know, the latter part of the show when the majority of the audience was watching and we gave them an opportunity to present their characters and their skill sets in such a way that not only enhanced the television show, but, you know, gave them more visibility as characters. So I I get it. I I understand your question. Why would you do it? And, And again, part of this, we were building something new. We were rewriting rules. We were throwing out the old rules and writing new ones. And, I was trying things. I was experimenting. I, I, and I believed in, in the luchadors and Hispanic tale. They proved themselves. They proved themselves to make the, the cruiserweight division what it was. And one of the greatest, one of the reasons the cruiserweight division is still talked about today and probably most people who are hardcore, long-term you know, fans that you know, watched Nitro and the Monday Night Wars back then would agree that one of the things that made Nitro so much better at this time than Monday Night Raw was because of the luchadors. So I I understand your question, but at the same time, I'm kind of surprised by it. Not surprised you asked it because it's a good question, but I'm su- I would be surprised if a lot of people felt that same way. Because I mean, I'm watching this match right now, and I'm thinking I'm not sure why anybody would find this match unusual to be at this stage of the show. It's a good match. Now, granted, I'll give you, you know, you're, you would be right if you said, yeah, but there's no story. There's no angle. You know, they can't do interviews. They can't do promos. That's true. But they also presented the product in a very unique and distinguishable way that made Nitro unique and distinguishable from our competition. They'll switch through there. Milano's swap out and, uh, a fresh man plays possum gets the roll up wind. Liz Mark jr. Goes down swinging. I guess what I was looking for is just you know, segment a or segment one, or I guess, as you guys call it now, how about this corkscrew plancha big deal here for Hector Garza, really the first guy to do it like that. I know a lot of more traditional old school American wrestling fans hate the idea of doing this big dive and, and having dudes just sort of stand below and wait on them. But it, it, that was really this era where it gained popularity, at least for me. And I came to sort of know what to expect. What I was looking for though, is more of the philosophy of how you format a show seg one versus seg two versus seg three. So let's pretend that they all sort of live in a vacuum of, Hey, here's what we need to accomplish in pieces. But now it's up to us sort of how we format the show where, how should all of these things fit together? So let's circle back again, three segments prior to this. It was an in-ring interview with JJ Dillon and Eric Bischoff. And then we went to Diamond Dallas page and Ric Flair. Uh, well, we had the nitro girl segment and then Ric Flair and Diamond Dallas page, and then the luchador match. And now we're back with another in-ring segment with JJ Dillon. There needs to be separation. It's not like you can have back to back JJ Dillon in-ring interviews with different situations. That's for sure. There's gotta be, <laughs> there you go. So I, I guess that's what I'm looking for is when you're back in this era of nitro, do you have sort of all these ideas together in, in some sort of a conference room and Hey, here's the segments we're going to put together. And then you guys sort of 
figure out how to storyline it and, and storyboard it rather the whole show or, or, or how did you put it together? Well, <clears throat> one of the best pieces of advice, now this is, you know, this advice that I'm about to share and it's, you know, no big deal, but, uh, came long after I was formatting and, and producing nitro, but ironically it was, I, I was operating under this kind of formula where the end always hangs in the beginning. And part of that is, you know, for example, in act one, you want to set up what you're going to see. You want to hook the audience. You want to get their attention. You want to create anticipation going back to story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. Sarsa. That was a formula that I kind of developed. I actually sold it from Dick Ebersol, modified it to fit our genre. But it was a formula back in 1996 that I went, ah, this is how you, this is how I format a show. This is how I, I, I build a brand using, you know, those five elements, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. Anticipation being one of the key, key ingredients. Now, going back to how do, how do you apply that to a format? You hook the audience. You tell them about what they're going to see later on in the show or in the next segment or in the next hour or whenever it's going to be placed in a show. You hook them. You tell them a story. You get them to anticipate what it is. You make it meaningful. You make it matter. And you do that in an in-ring promo or you do that backstage in a backstage promo. Whatever, whatever the device, however you want to present it, you do it in dialogue making them, making the audience choose to want to stick around and see what it is that's going to happen either in the next segment or three segments from now or four segments from now, depending on what else is going on in the show. So when you talk about how do you use it, and if the question is how and why do you use an in-ring segment, it's to build anticipation. You're setting something up. Something big is going to happen, and you want to use that in ring or backstage or whatever the device may be to build that anticipation so that the audience sticks around giving you the opportunity to excite them when you deliver whatever it is you're going to deliver. Does that make sense? Yes. Whew, that's good. Cause I'm out of wind. Well, here's the moment. A lot of people have been waiting for sting has come down from the rafters and, uh, of course, JJ is very excited. Cause he's got a contract for him and it's supposed to be, of course, the match thing really wants is with Hulk Hogan, but we don't know that yet. Maybe we do, but oh, poor JJ Dillon does not. Uh, he's got him an offer to wrestle Kurt Henning sting. Of course, is going to rip that up and leave and not be happy. And the fans aren't going to be happy. A fair amount of booze for sting at this point, because they want sting to do something. They're excited that sting is here and want more sting and. He's over like Rover, even though he's just coming down from the roof and swinging a bat around. Uh, and I guess the storyline here begins that JJ is going to bring out a different contract each week for a higher up on the food chain. Isn't that interesting though? And I'm, I'm, I don't mean to cut you off, Connor, but it's so interesting. And I honestly, I forgot about all this until you brought it up, but you talk about taking chances. I mean, first of all, here's a character that doesn't talk for almost a year, right? Who would ever, who does that, right? Who does that? That's, that's insane. Who would take that risk? Who would make that decision? Not only make that decision and take that risk, but who would stick with it when the audience is actually booing the character that you want them to love, but you go, you know what? 
stick with it. It will work out in the long run. That's a creative risk. And I'm not putting myself over because it was a team effort and a team decision. But that's that's the kind of thing that we often don't see enough of. And I'm not saying you should take that risk often or you should take it you know, with a lot of different types of characters. But, you know, people are so reactive now in, in all forms of entertainment. I'm not just talking about sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever. All forms of entertainment. You know, you sell a show to a network. You know, I've been in this boat. You know, it's one of the reasons I was kind of <laughs> grateful to get out of the day-to-day trying to sell television business. Because people are so risk-adverse in today's environment. You can't afford to take risks like you could back you know, earlier, you couldn't take your time. You couldn't, you couldn't bet on yourself because now in today's environment, well, you do something on a Monday and if it doesn't work by Tuesday morning, you're shifting gears and going in another direction the following Monday. Sometimes stories, characters, whatever it is you're doing, takes a little bit longer to get a hold of the audience. It takes some time to grab a hold of it. And in, in this case with Sting, you're right. Singh was coming down. He 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 wasn't talking. People were pissed off. They couldn't figure out why he wasn't saying what he, he they wanted him to say. They wanted him to say, "Fuck you! I want Hulk Hogan." He wouldn't say it. He he you felt it. You knew it. But here's what it did: it built anticipation. Going back to story, anticipation, reality, surprise. We kept really focusing on anticipation. We wanted the audience to want it so bad it hurt. And when they started booing Sting, we knew, I know this is going to sound like 2020, you know, hindsight, but we knew we were on the right track. It's why we didn't abandon the storyline because the audience wanted it so bad. We knew that once we gave it to them, it would work, but you can't, it's hard to do that today. It's just, it's such a different environment today. Um, People have a shorter attention span today than they used to 20 years ago. The audience is used to watching their shit on YouTube and, you know, on their phones. And, you know, their attention spans are so much shorter. That makes it even more difficult to take those kind of risks today. I think corporately speaking, people are more risk adverse today than they were 20 years ago. There's a lot of different reasons for it. But I think those reasons are one of the reasons why we don't have the kind of long-term build like we used to see, you know, in the eighties and nineties, you know, in, in sports entertainment. And here we go. Our main event. The presentation for nitro, the entrance set, the pyro, the lighting, I miss it. Me too. I understand these days it's a different era and you can do better stuff and you can have the ramp be a screen and the stage be a screen and the walls behind you be a screen and put whatever logos you want on them. But I just really like the look and feel of nitro. Part of it is your age. Of course you grew up no. on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this Nitro, 97, 98, you've said this before, 97, 98 was kind of like the peak of your fandom as a wrestling fan. Mine, you know, personally was in the, probably the mid seventies, you know, late seventies. So we all have a tendency to kind of gravitate to what we grew up on. Yeah. You gravitate towards what left its biggest impression upon you. 
I'm sure there are wrestling fans today that look at the product, the way it's presented, you know, in WWE, for example, which is not because I work here and I'm part of the company, but when you talk about presentation and production value, I don't think you can make a comparison to WWE with any other brand. They don't exist, and they probably won't for a long time. And and fans now will probably look at some of the stuff at, on Nitro and go, oh, God, that was horrible. <laughs> but you and I look at it differently. So one of the things I wanted to catch you up on from the observers, Meltzer says, uh, storyline is that Dylan, Dylan will bring out a contract for guys each week, higher up the food chain, eventually leading to hall and then Nash and Sting will continually rip it up and leave until they get to Hogan. When Sting will then sign from the timing of everything. You think they could only stretch this till maybe October's havoc show, but I'm told the plan it's still for it to be the match at the new Washington DC arena in December. At this point, you guys pretty well had that mapped out that, Hey, Starcade, this is what we're getting to. We've wrote it this long. Let's just wrap it up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We, I mean, really, this is one of the first storylines that I was firm about kind of reverse engineering as I call it. Um, pick a date and work backwards and figure out a way to make it work. And I still believe in that to this day. I really, I believe in it more now than I did back then is, you know, I guess it's called a story arc. If you were, you know, a television writing professor, um, the only way I know how to do it is to work backwards. Right. You know, when, I mean, if I was going to write a book, I would figure out how I wanted that book to end. What's, what's the last, what's the last four paragraphs of the last chapter, figure that out and then work backwards and build towards it. That's that's how my mind works. And that's how it was working back then. It's like, okay, Starcade, that's it. That's the date. Now let's just work backwards and try to find a way to fill in the blanks and make it work up until that point. Well, you guys were, we're doing something really, really special here. Uh, I do want to ask, you know, there, of course there's lots of rumor and innuendo and every time I bring it up, you shit all over it. So I'm ready for you to shit on it again. When someone has the idea, Hey man, we need nitro for three hours. No, nitro number 100, to make a big splash and do a big number with, uh, the new format. And this is the day after SummerSlam and it's right before our big pay-per-view and we need to pop a rating on that because historically road wilds and hog wilds have not set the woods on fire and it's a different day of the week. So historically wrestling pay-per-views were on Sunday here, we're going to be doing it on a Saturday. So there's lots of reasons to sort of bring attention to it when, and I assume it's you, do you give the news to Hulkster that, Hey, we want to drop the belt. He's cool. Mo D. No, he was, you know, I don't remember it. You know, I don't remember the conversation, but sure. Uh, let me put it this way: if if he if there was an issue with it, I would remember the conversation. Um, I know the perception and the rumor and the innuendo, which I refer to as just bullshit, because um, that's what it is. Is so much different than the reality. You know, here 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 was my experience with Hulk. If you wanted something big to happen, whether it was him winning the belt, losing the belt, whatever the case may be, 
if there was a great story and it made sense and you could ask you could answer one question this is where <laughs> i'm not even going to mention his name but this is where certain people absolutely fell apart and you know wet themselves is he'll he'd look you in the eye and say hmm cool where does that go or hmm cool what's next now if you could answer uh, you know where does it go or what's next you'd get his attention and if it was a good story and it really did go somewhere and there really was something next that mattered he was the easiest guy in the world to work with where he became difficult to work with is when you come to him with this big we're gonna do this we're gonna do this and you're gonna drop the belt and he stroke his Fu Manchu and go, hmm, cool. Where does that go? And if you look like a fucking deer to headlights and you started to wet your pants, that was the end of the conversation. And unfortunately, a lot of the bad rap that, that Hulk you know, got or, or the rumor in innuendo was, for the most part, generated by people who would pitch him ideas that never went anywhere or didn't really make any sense. Other than it was a hot idea in the moment. Well, that's easy. Anybody can come up with an, you know, a hot show. Coming up with one hot show is not that hard. Coming up with fifty-two of them becomes a challenge. <laughs> um, and 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 coming up with those big moments that actually lead to a bigger moment or another big moment, that is a challenge. That does take a unique. That is an art. It's not a science. You know, anybody can book one show. Anybody can book one pay per view. Anybody can book one week. It doesn't take any particular talent. I can find a 12-year-old kid that watches wrestling and plays video games that could do that. That's easy. Or they write an online newsletter or whatever the fuck. That's easy. But doing it 52 weeks a year is where it becomes a challenge and an art. And I only say that. I'm not, and I'm not getting defensive, and I'm not trying to defend Hulk here, but... You know, again, you brought up the rumor and innuendo and how difficult was it to get Hulk to do a job? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Was it all because of all this, you know, we had all the big pay-per-view coming up? But that was part of it. You know, that was part of the what's next scenario. That's part of the where does it go scenario. Yes, that wasn't part of the discussion, I'm sure. I don't remember it, but I'm sure that it was. You know, honestly, the three-hour, you know, the fact that we've, you know, got a new three-hour format, we were coming off SummerSlam, that had nothing to do with it. The fact that we had a three-hour format was, okay, we, we've gone from trying to build a hot two-hour show, now we're going to build a hot three-hour show. How do we do that? You know, I'm sure that was part of the conversation. But it, it wasn't necessarily a reaction to anything the competition was doing. It was a reaction to, holy crap, how do we do a three-hour show and make it entertaining leading into a pay-per-view? Let's... uh you know, we, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about Hulk Hogan as well. We should, you know, he's, um, responsible for the two uh, biggest booms in wrestling history. And I know a lot of people are going to argue and say, Oh no, that was stone cold, but Hey bro, that was late. Uh, Hogan's the one who, uh, got it kicked off. Yeah. Austin helped take it to another level, but the black and white of the NWO was, is what really got it going. So. What we don't spend as much time talking about on this show is Lex Luger and 
you know, the, the nitro concept changed everything. And of course, in the very first episode, Hogan's in the main event, but what everybody would be talking about is Lex Luger jumping ship. So how fitting that when you guys are going to set records and do big business, it's back to those same two performers who were sort of at the forefront of the very first episode of nitro. But I think in spite of all of Luger's accomplishments of, you know, the WWF and WCW. And of course, I think most people remember he first won the, the big belt in 91 when flair left and went to work for Vince McMahon and he, you know, had the whole Royal rumble issue and the WrestleMania 10 opportunity and the big SummerSlam built around him the year prior to that, what we're watching right now has got to be the biggest moment of Lex Luger's career. Does it not? You know, I, you know, I don't know. I, obviously that's a perspective that only Lex Luger could have. Uh, I would think it may have felt that way to him. Although, you know, I, I think the opportunity to go to the WWE when it was a juggernaut or WWF at the time, but when it was a juggernaut and, you know, he, he, he got, the, you know, the Lex express and we all know how that turned out and it didn't turn out as probably as well as anybody thought it would or wanted it to, but I'm sure there were times in the very beginning of all that, that Lex may have felt that was the biggest point in his career. Um, I don't know, but to me, you know, this, this, you know, when I look at Lex and his career from my perspective, not Lex's, like I said, only Lex knows what the biggest moment in his career was to him. But for me, I think this was Lex Luger at the top of his game. I mean, even as a performer, his work in the ring, in this match, he he's really working, I think, technically better than he probably ever had up until this point. You know, he's fluid. He's, he, he's selling in a natural way. He's taking his time. He's registering. He's giving the audience a chance to to absorb the story as it's happening in the ring. He's not rushing things. Um, I, I just think from a technical perspective, this might be the best work he's ever done. And how great is this too, that, you know, you got all this interference from the NWO and there's no DQ because none of them land a blow. They're very careful to make sure that nobody gets any offense on him. And, and there's, so there's no technical reason for there to be a DQ. So you're not making the referee look stupid necessarily, necessarily. And Luger's just keeping them all at bay. And this is why it seems signaling for the rack here. And you got to go back and watch this without us and just feel this moment with the sound. Look at the crowd, man. And look at Lex sell it. Look at him. Look at this reaction. This, this, this stuff gets me excited. This is where, you know, when I was a little kid and, and a young man and I'd watch wrestling, I would get excited when there was those moments when you couldn't tell, is this real? Is this not real? I know the rest of this stuff is all, you know, scripted, but these two guys really hate each other. That was, that was kind of my threshold for greatness at that point in my career or in my fandom, I should say. But now when I, when I watch a scene like this, and God, I want to say this the right way. And I know I'm going to say it the wrong way. Nobody in that ring right now is an actor. None of them are right. Okay. 
But the emotion that they're feeling and evoking and the emotion that they're creating in the audience is as real as it gets. This is as real as anything gets. And I just find it so exciting to watch when you can create those moments where the talent involved actually allows themselves to feel like it's real and to become actors, even though they're not, I just, that's fucking magic. I just love it. I get really excited watching stuff like this. This is, you know, it's weird. You know, you got, you know, talent in there wearing their plaid shorts and, you know, not looking like stars and, but that's part of what makes it feel real. They were backstage. They didn't plan on coming out. They didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to the wardrobe and <clears throat> they didn't go to makeup before they came out to make their big, you know, hurrah shot at the end. It, it just, it makes it feel so believable and so real. It gets me excited. And you see, you know, the, the guys coming out to celebrate with him and then they're all sort of leading a parade backstage and usually the show will go off the air, but it's not here. We're given a few more minutes to sort of digest what has just happened. And of course we're going to sell the fact that these guys are going to wrestle again in just a handful of nights this Saturday night live on pay-per-view, but we're going to cut away in a minute to a backstage shot that I felt like was really like the icing on the cake and, and added another layer of realism to the show. Um, because we know that for years, the NWO has been in control. Well, I guess not for years, but for almost exactly a year, the NWO has been in control of the world title. And once Hulk Hogan beat the giant for that at hog wild in 1996, they spray painted NWO on the richest prize of the promotion, the world heavyweight championship. And now we're going to go get a shot backstage and see Ray Mysterio and a few other guys helping Luger clean the spray paint off the world title. I thought that was such a, a little touch, but so well done. And it added, you know, a layer of realism. Hey, this is a war. It's WCW versus the NWO. And even though none of these guys are the world champion, they're really excited. And there you see the champagne bath and the giant pouring a little paint thinner on top of the world title to get that uh, spray paint off. Cause we've reclaimed one for the good guys for WCW. Isn't it just awesome only to be taken away again, but that's okay. That's the drama. That's the story. I mean, t- realistically though, you know, Luger is, uh, was supposed to be in there against Ric Flair, great American bash, 1991 in Baltimore. Of course, we know that doesn't happen. Uh, Flair has a big dispute with, with herd and leaves. So they get a replacement last minute belt from dusty roads promotion and put a little shitty plate over the plate, the main plate and throw together a cage match with him and Barry Windham. This has to be much more meaningful, beating the biggest star in the history of the business on the hottest show in front of the biggest crowd. It's just such a cool moment. And uh, as a wrestling fan, what a great time to be a wrestling fan. You had a tremendous pay-per-view the night before with SummerSlam. You're curious what's going to happen there, but on the other channel, look at what we got Lex Luger. And this is really the first time we've seen the NWO take a major loss like this. Yep. It was a great evolution, a great turn in the storyline. And I think it made it more interesting at a perfect time. It was great. 
Well, this was fun and, and we apologize that we weren't able to bring it to you last week. We're really glad that we were able to do it now. It would have been really easy for us to skip this one because last week, of course, was, uh, really the, uh, the more close anniversary of the show, you know, it would have been one day after the 20 something year anniversary instead, you know, we covered it here, but what we're going to be doing next week on the show is revisiting the clash of the champions from this same month, uh, which, uh, is, is really the last clash of the champions. We talked about that a lot here about how it was no longer a priority. Uh, so we're going to sort of catch up with that one and watch that last clash of the champions together. And, uh, before we finish out the month, we're still going to try to find a way to tackle road wild 1999, which is Eric's last pay-per-view in charge. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll make our way around eventually to catching up with that nitro where Arn Anderson gave Kurt his spot in the four horsemen. Lots of fun stuff coming up here on 83 weeks. Appreciate you guys tuning in this week, supporting us and supporting our sponsors. We wanted to, uh, get those in early this week to allow you to watch the show along with us sort of unencumbered. And we're looking forward to being here next week. And Eric's looking, uh, too perfect to be real with his new implant. <laughs> uh, only my hair is perfect now. Just my hair. Well, no, I mean, you got perfect teeth too. I mean, you paid all that money for something. I mean, if you're going to put a, a, a BMW SUV in your mouth, it ought to at least look good. Right. There you go. There, there you go. go. Follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks. He is at E Bischoff. I am a, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.